This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Man alive. And we got a great show for you today. Holy cow. September 1st. No rhyme or reason day. I don't, I don't even know what that means. That's my life. It's this show. Is, this show no has rhyme no or reason, rhyme right? or reason. <laughs> and today is the day we celebrate that. Happy days to you today, man. Alive. Uh, interesting, interesting stuff going on. Um, where do we begin? We've just got so much news. First of all, today, in just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Dr. Greg Murray, who is going to uh, be talking to us about presidential candidates and the quirky things that make us vote for them. Like height, for example. Are you more inclined to vote for a president that's taller? Like, think about it. When was the last real squatty little president we had? Just a squatty little man. It's a big deal, isn't it? Does it matter what your president looks like? And if so, does it matter? Does Trump's hair really bother you? Could he be the president of the United States just because of his hair? Is that going to keep him out of your mind? Ah, no, the hair's got to go. Well, you remember Richard Nixon and JFK and the debates. That, yeah. The, the visual, the seeing them, that made a huge a difference. Mess. Yeah. <laughs> you can't be... And that uh, makes a difference. Yeah, it, really it totally does. does. No, it totally does. Um, so one of the things that we really want to make sure we're getting into as we as we talk about this with um, our guest coming up in just a few minutes, Greg Murray, he, he's an expert in this, has been studying what makes you vote for people. And we're going to get into everything, their height, their weight. I mean, really, are, are people just more inclined, and especially women, because the female vote is, is going to be critical this time around. It's like, this is it. So it might be interesting to find out, are females more likely to vote for people that, uh, that uh, you know, say different or that have a different look? Well, and Chris Christie, look at all the criticism he's had because of his weight. You know, people definitely look at things like that. So yeah, it makes a difference. Now, Chris Christie, that was a big deal too, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah, it was. So we'll be getting into that in just a few moments. But, but uh, before we do, um, you know, this whole Kanye West thing is taking off. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard, mm-hmm. but he's now got a pack. I don't know if you were going to report on that. <laughs> I wasn't. Kanye West. I thought I did it all yesterday. He has that a pack, um, which is just absolutely scary. Like, I'm, I seriously am hoping that people aren't serious about this. You're not his campaign manager, are you? No, okay, I'm not. Good. I just don't. I really don't want Kanye to have it. But they do. We did track this down. And this was hard to find. Uh, we tracked down and found Kanye West's, um, what they believe might be his first State of the Union address, what it would sound like. Let's listen. It's honor of presenting to you the President of the United States. Bro! <laughs> Speaking to Congress, of course. Listen to the kids. Yeah. He's going to get a lot of standing ovations. Y'all might be thinking right now, I wonder, did he smoke something before he yeah. came out here? That's what we want. The answer is yes. I rolled up a little something. Oh, I boy. The edge off. Oh, jeez. 
That's your, where we're headed. You're a future president of the United States. The neat thing is, listen up here. It don't matter, though, because it ain't about me. It's about ideas, bro. New ideas. People with ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those ideas are? Listen to the kids, Listen to the kids. Listen to the kids, bro. <laughs> By the way, Ben uh, just placed his hand over his heart. Good stuff. In reverence. Your future president. Oh, frightening. I'm looking towards the future. Well, you, he, I think he was talking about you. Listen to the kids, brah. That's you, Benny. Yeah, so, you know, if it doesn't work out with Trump, then it might be Kanye. Or Bernie Sanders. I was going to say Bernie. I think it's a Democrat. You think it's a Democrat? You think, think Bernie's going to pull this out? Oh, yeah, Kanye. That's yeah, true. Yeah. That's totally true. I might just vote for Kanye this time. Okay, you know, he's no. not He's not even running this time. Well, with Hillary, she may be in trouble. We, we need to educate. Bernie we'll, Sanders? We'll, we'll, we'll oh, educate. boy. By the way, did you, hear, did you hear that great news that um, on CNN, in one of the interviews, they actually asked, um, they asked the Don, or they asked, what's his name? What's his Donald name? Donald Trump. Ben Carson. Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney. If you know, if he might, if he might vote for Donald Trump, is he going to yeah, back? That's a clown Trump? question, bro. That's <laughs> a clown question. I love that. It's uh, uh, and and he just was like la 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 la. Please. He doesn't want it. We we have that audio. Do you know what? Where you put that? We're gonna we're gonna play the actual audio. Well, Dick because, Cheney's an establishment kind of guy. So. I don't know the man. I've never met him. Watching this whole spectacle, what do you well, think? Well, again, he's a candidate, and I don't want to be in the business of rating candidates at this point or grading them. Uh, <laughs> I uh, um, in other have words. not signed on with anybody, and I don't plan to today. <laughs> you know what's so crazy about it is he, he can't – he's like, uh, he is a human being. Uh, I'm not here to grade candidates he does not. i have a feeling if they asked him about jeb bush though he would have an opinion he'd jump right on yeah, board he would absolutely anyway so uh fun uh political news and today in just a few minutes we'll be talking with dr greg murray who is an expert um from texas tech and he's going to be walking us through what people actually what drives somebody to vote for somebody does their height matter does weight matter just interesting little uh, actually quirky little things about our candidates Stick with us on that. But first, let's go and uh, talk to Kathy about the headlines. Good morning, everyone. The State Department last night released more than 7,000 emails sent by Hillary Clinton's private email server. Over 100 of those are now classified. Officials say none were deemed classified when they were sent, something Clinton has already stated. Attorney Bradley Moss says despite this, Clinton may not be prosecuted. Will she likely be prosecuted for it? Probably not. What you have is information that is now being deemed classified by certain parts of the government. State Department is disputing some aspects of that. And so it's not quite clear that she should have known this was classified, let alone if it was, in fact, classified at the time. Officials also said members of the State Department's IT division were unaware that the Secretary of State was using a private email address. President Obama yesterday said the world is not moving fast enough to combat climate change. Obama is in Alaska at a climate change conference and said if things don't change, we will, quote, condemn our children to a world they will no longer have the capacity to repair. Yesterday, we shared a poll from the Des Moines Register that says Donald Trump had a five-point lead on Ben Carson in Iowa. 
Well, another poll, one from Monmouth University, has the two tied at 23 percent in that state. According to Bloomberg Politics Managing Editor John Heileman, Iowans like non-establishment candidates. These non-politicians on the Republican side yep. dominate the field, or anti-establishment politicians. So Trump, Carson, Fiorina, and Ted Cruz, who's the most anti-establishment elected official. Carson, in particular, in our poll, comes through. He is the top choice of evangelical voters in Iowa right now. Speaking of Fiorina, she came in third in that poll with 10 percent. The Texas police officer who was gunned down at a gas station last week was shot 15 times. Here's Harris County, Texas District Attorney Devin Anderson. We're going to try to figure out the motive, even though we don't have to prove it under Texas law. Everybody sure would like to know the motive. The man arrested and charged with capital murder, Shannon Miles, will undergo a psychological exam as part of the investigation. Three years ago, Miles was found mentally incompetent to stand trial on a felony assault charge. The Supreme Court yesterday rejected a Kentucky County clerk's request not to be forced to issue same-sex marriage licenses. Kim Davis, an elected clerk in Rowan County, says doing so violates her religious convictions. If Davis doesn't start issuing licenses today, she could be held in contempt. Serena Williams had no trouble in her first-round match at the U.S. Open yesterday as her opponent, Vitalia Diachenko, retired in the second set last night. If Williams wins the Open, she'll be just the fourth woman to complete the Grand Slam of tennis. The NFL and Tom Brady fell to reach a settlement yesterday on Deflategate, so Richard Berman, the judge in the case, said he'll make a ruling maybe as early as today. And Matt, you know, Elton John has earned a lot of honors throughout his career, but maybe none quite like this one. Yeah. Dr. James Thomas discovered a crustacean that looks like a shrimp, but the good doctor saw a little bit of Sir Elton. Oh, really? One that lives in the reefs of Indonesia and Hawaii. Thomas, who's an Elton John fan, thought the crustacean looked like Elton John's shoes that he wore as the pinball wizard. Oh. So since scientists who discover new species have the honor of coming up with a name, he called it L. El Tony. Oh, really? Yeah, L capital L, El Tony. You know, his shoes? The shoes. The crustacean that looked like a shrimp how looked about, like the shoes. How about just like those big sunglasses that are star-shaped? I think it had sunglasses on as well. <laughs> I mean, that looks like a crustacean uh, yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, but the crustacean now, L El Tony. I mean, what an honor, really. That, that is the highest. Would you, like, well, would you rather seriously. have a star named after you or a crustacean? Oh, crustacean oh, for, for sure. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, have you had a crustacean? <laughs> they are so good. <laughs> Just in butter, dipped in butter. Mm. You can't get enough. You know, um, (laughs) that is quite the honor. Uh, For sure. But, you know, nobody's going to sit there and care in 50 years. No. But if you had a star, you know, that's that's yeah, that's a much that's higher, no pun intended, honor than the below higher. the water crustacean much that higher. lives in the reefs. You know, what? Uh, what's going on with Carson? Carson's on fuego. Yeah. But really, you know what else? Kasich is second in New Hampshire. He is very different. He's definitely more the establishment candidate than Ben Carson. I think Ben Carson, he's a humble guy. He is non-establishment, doesn't know anything. Well, I shouldn't say that. Knows little about Washington, which people want. People are so tired of the politicians. I saw a poll yesterday where, I mean, it is single digits Mm. where – no one thinks anybody's doing a good job. No, he's and he's got the great rags to riches story. He's brilliant, and he's brilliant. And just – you know what? Uh, we're, well, that's what we'll get into with our next guest because he's such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Is he just too nice? 
Trump's well, just so mean so different. that he's such yeah. a nice contrast. Mm-hmm. That's crazy? why I can't wait for the next debate to see those oh, two I go know. against this each other. That'll be crazy. fun. Well, yeah. and I don't know if you saw, but Chris Christie says he's going to go nuclear. Mm-hmm. Well, he has to. He's, he's going to go off. You know, single digits. Which could, you know, could go one way or another because, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't always bode well. Well, Jeb Bush is losing a lot of his lot of his fund, fund, I funders, I guess you oh, call them. Oh, yeah. This is scary. Good stuff. <laughs> Great news. Well done. Uh, coming up next, uh, Dr. Greg Murray will be joining us, and he is um, a political science professor from Texas Tech University. He's been studying um, just kind of the quirky realities of how we choose our political candidates. And you won't believe it. Some of the things... We do to choose our presidents. We're just strange. We are strange. He's going to be giving us some insights into that. He's also the uh, the author of Caveman Politics blog, which is on political, which is on psychology today, and uh, just some great articles about power and our political system. Folks, stick with us. Dr. Greg Murray from Texas Tech will be up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Do you want a short president? Does your president's height matter to you? Uh, Think about what's going on with all of these candidates. You're evaluating every single one of them, and you may not even know exactly how you're evaluating them. So we wanted to bring in an expert. Dr. Greg Murray is joining us. And Dr. Greg Murray is a professor of political science at Texas Tech University. He has honestly... Uh, if you're into politics, he has a great blog you got to go check out called Caveman Politics. It's on psychology today, and it's just basically how evolution impacts politics. It's how we have evolved as people, and some of our evolution uh, impacts how we look at our candidates. Just fascinating articles about why people, you know, are looking at candidates, you know, the way that, that you do. Dr. Greg Murray, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for your interest in my research and a very nice introduction. You bet. You know what? Honestly, I was sitting there thinking, where have you been all my life, Greg? Because I can't I, I cannot get what's going on politically right now because and then I, then as I read some of your stuff, it starts to dawn on me that, for example, the Trumpster, he's such a bully that I, I mean, if if you had the schoolyard bully, everybody would eventually get on the bully side just to not be bullied. That's exactly that's exactly right. And and what we know is is that sometimes the political environment is such that we want the schoolyard bully leading us, and sometimes it's such that you know maybe that's not the person we want. We need somebody who's a little more um, discreet and and a little a little less aggressive in what's being done. So yeah, that's, a la, that's, it's very interesting. A la Ben Carson, who well, I think so. amazingly right. is the opposite of a Donald Trump. I mean, it's this is what I think is just fascinating because you you studied this in depth and I want you to teach us um you've even studied to the level really of what what drives us to vote the way we do but you've gotten into height to weight age everything talk to us about what you are learning about how we choose our presidential candidates 
Well, I will do my best. There's a lot of interesting information on this. What originally got me started on this idea was something called the Presidential Height Index, and it's this this idea that you see, it seems like, every four years, and you're already seeing some of it in the media now, uh, that the tallest of the presidential candidates win. And, and it's really funny. I had a very extremely tall graduate student, and we started talking about this. He was 6'7". I'm just 5'9", but he was 6'7". We started talking about this and laughing about it a little bit. And then got into a discussion about, you know, what, what, what is going on here? Yeah. Is this just some crazy statistical fluke, or is there something to explain this? So we got, we got together and did some research on it and came up with some, some pretty interesting findings in terms of that, indeed, people do tend to prefer presidential candidates that are taller than the typical citizen. Hmm. Now, what we, what we did to a degree, we dismissed the idea that it's, you know, the president, the tallest candidate wins. Because, you know, when we're watching, uh, you know, the news and that sort of stuff, you very rarely see the candidates standing right next to each right. other. You have no idea how tall they are, um, that sort of thing. But what we do know is is that if you look at the list of even of the heights of the candidates uh, this year, that they're almost all taller than the average uh, male citizen in the United States. The average males are about 5'9". And most of these candidates are running, you know, 5'11", five, five, six feet, going on up from there. Interesting. And, and over time, this is the same pattern that you find. Well, we got into a little bit of this explanation, and as you suggested, we, 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 we argued at least that there's an evolutionary effect to this. And, it, you, I mean, you were right on in talking about the schoolyard bully. There are times when, you know, we want to protect our resources, uh, we want to make sure we have the resources that we need to survive and reproduce if you want to get into sort of the hard, harder core evolutionary language. And in that case, that's when you want the big guy on your side because what you're doing, at least from, from our argument, is is you're sending a signal to potential competitors for your resources that, hey, you know, do you want to fight with me over these resources? We can do it, but the fight's going to be constant because, look, I've got the big guy on my mm, side. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're, we can do this if you want to, but the fight is going to be extremely costly. So that's what that's what got us, got us started on this. Who's the tallest candidate, by the way, Greg? I think this year, I think it's George Pataki, and he's running about 6'5", I believe. Yeah, yeah. Who, and who's the shortest? Uh, yeah, on, for the males, it would be Lindsey Graham. He's five seven, and then for um, females, Hillary evidently is about five seven, and Carly Fiorina is five six. Which, by the way, now it's a very small sample for the women. Yeah, sure. It's pretty interesting because the typical, the average American um, female is about five four. Huh. So even our female candidates are taller. Are, ten, are taller. Now, again, I don't want you know. It's yeah. a Very small sample. Yeah. I, you know, that's not something you want to make a big deal of, but it's certainly there. Um, have you Have you, know, you gone back through history? Is it the same? Is it true historically? Yeah, it is pretty much. It is true historically. Actually, we did another study. We didn't. We didn't publish it, but we did do another study. Actually, looking back at all of the um, presidential candidates, going back to, uh, to George Washington and his first in his first election, what we found that in about two thirds of the time 
the um, taller of the two presidential candidates won. And I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but we also looked at the two major party candidates and at the, the height of them hmm. and compared it to the average citizen's height at that time, the average male citizen at that height that time, and they were still significantly taller. Hmm. So like I said, this is a long-term yeah. pattern. And it's really, it's really interesting, too, because it led us to believe there's something else going on. And what you find, too, is that people who are taller tend to think themselves more qualified to be a leader or to run to office right. and to be more likely to win if they do run. Interesting, so we're, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Well, the, I, I've heard studies in the past, too, just on head size of the president. Have you heard of those? I and, have not heard of that. Like no. Winston Churchill had an enormous noggin. And was was greatly respected. I guess Clinton has a fairly big head. I guess, but some yeah. some of these, I don't know. I, I don't remember. But it was in like Time Magazine or something. Just about people with big heads tend to be more successful well, too. Now you now you piqued my interest. In it. I'm going to go. Yeah, no, I would go look that up after we get off the air. Yeah, because that's <laughs> it's it really. I mean, but there's something about just size dominance. I mean, there's. I mean, you, I mean, everybody's felt that before. If if you had to. If if you had um, I don't know a, a leader or um, even somebody trying to sell you a car that's taller, it's there's something more just dominant about that. Oh, they're very much just I, yeah, very much so. And what you find there's all kinds of, of evidence from psychology, even looking in terms of taller taller males in particular team tend to make more money. They tend to have higher status. They tend to have uh, they tend to have the higher jobs within organizations. Um, you know, there's lots of evidence. They tend to have greater educational attainment. There's all kinds of evidence about how physical stature is related to you know to basically success in society. Yeah. I say this as, as as somebody you know who's average. Size. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm five eleven, and I'm like, what a rip off. Yeah, I know. But well, it all got a couple inches on me. So yeah, I, <laughs> but it's all it's all good because you know what? Put me in coach seating, and I laugh at the tall people all day long. There you go. I'm with you on that. You know what I mean? We're talking exactly. with uh, Doctor Greg Murray, and uh, we're going to take a break. Come back, have more with Greg Murray, and and get into some other aspects of uh, you know things that are maybe subconsciously driving you to choose the candidate you're, cho- you're choosing. I want to find out if he knows anything about, is, does weight matter? How about age? How about balding? There's been interesting studies about uh, how people feel about somebody that's bald. Um, gives them a sense of power, a sense of dominance and control. And we'll talk more about this, folks. The quirky little things that might be driving our choices when it comes to presidential candidates. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Greg Murray, right out of uh, Texas Tech University. He's a professor of political science there and has studied uh, a trend in political leadership um, and some of the quirky things that we do as human beings to um, 
to elect our, our leaders. We're looking at certain traits. We don't know why we do it, but height apparently is one of them. We tend to choose the taller candidate. Not always the tallest candidate, but once we get it down to a couple and we, you know, we like the candidates, we tend to go for the tall one. Uh, and uh, he's here to give us some more insight into some of the quirky ways we choose our candidates. Greg Murray, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So in your research, height obviously over time has become um, a pretty good indicator of who we're going to choose. Are there other you know, physiological traits, weight? Does that matter? Stuff like that. There certainly are. Uh, again, it's really interesting ones. One of, one of the primary ones, and to a degree, in more, some of my more recent research, it's emerged as something that really that really challenges height, and that is weight. And when I, I referred to earlier, based on the context, really matters. What we find, for instance, is is that if you set people up and say, "Hey, the country's in a, a in a condition of thre- of threat such as war," what we tend to do is prefer leaders who are heavier in weight. Then, if we tell them the the country is in a condition of peace or cooperation, something along those lines, then it actually has a big effect, and and it's kind of an interesting effect as well. Now, we combine that with the height, and obviously, if you have height and weight, what you can do is go to BMI. Now, I know all the, you know, a lot of people have a lot of criticisms of BMI, and I and I recognize that, but it is sort of a general indicator. Yeah. And what you find is is really interesting that again context matters, and in a condition of threat, external threat, war, we prefer leaders with greater BMI than in a condition of peace. The other interesting thing about it is that, you know, they have these categories of BMI, and what you find is is that our leaders tend to fall right on the edge of healthy BMI and overweight. I mean, it is right on the edge. The break, the break point is, is, I think, right at 25, uh, whatever we measure BMI yeah. at, 25. And the, the average estimates put our, put our leader right at 24, uh, 24.7 or 25, right in that range. So they want the leaders to be normally sized, huh. but on the heavy side of that. During war. So, so if we're at well, war, we want a higher BMI? We want a higher BMI, right? That is so strange. That it's it's very strange. It's very strange. But you know, I mean, let's think about this for a second. Look at what Jeff Bush has done. I don't. I mean, I've watched him, and he's shrunk away. Yeah. These yeah. guys realize that they need to be. They need to look like they're in reasonable physical condition. Sure. Uh, you know, Chris Christie had his uh, his weight surgery, and he looks like he's dropped a tremendous amount of weight. He looks a lot better, but you know what? He still looks like he's got a lot to go. I think I think that's gonna that's gonna <laughs> I say this generally weigh against him in you know in people's evaluations <laughs> yeah. to a degree. So yeah, that is something. Weight is certainly something that uh, has an effect, and I think it's in combination with height. And you get to this sort of we want our leaders to be healthy mm-hmm. looking. Well, if you think about just tribal, if we were if we were just a tribe. And we could hardly talk, and we weren't being advertised to for our vote. And we were picking a tribal leader. We'd pick the one with good teeth, you know, with that's right. tall, that's probably got a gut because it means he can get food. We we would pick him very subconsciously for reasons of power and strength. And 
that's probably not going to go away just because we live in the 21st century. I think I think that's absolutely right, particularly thinking in the context of we know a lot of people. I mean, unlike you and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about politics, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you do. Too. Yeah, there are a lot of people, you know, there I we talk to my students about this all the time. A lot of people aren't as engaged in politics as we are because they're trying to get to work. They're trying to get the kids to school. They're trying to go to school themselves. They're trying to have a relationship, you know, with family and friends and all in church and all the other things that they're, they're trying to do just to live their life. They're not focused on politics every day. So sometimes, not that this physical, these physical characteristics determine their votes in any way, but sometimes if you're sitting there looking at a couple of candidates and, you know, the, the issues are complicated and I don't know a lot about um, either one of them or yeah. I know a lot of complicated information that's really confusing, you know, sometimes it's just these little impressions uh, that could make a difference. You know, I just feel better about mm-hmm. one candidate or another. And I think that's how this, these sort of physical signals and cues play into this. It just, it just sometimes gives a, a feeling or a sense about a candidate that, uh, you know, is part of your overall calculation. About yeah. Them. What about hair? I mean, uh, Mitt Romney had a great set of hair, a head of hair, right? He was He was looking really presidential. He was in great shape. But there are studies I know that are out there about bald men that have a more dominant image. If you're clean shaven and your head's shaved, I mean, Lex Luthor was bald. Oh, he sure was. Yeah. <laughs> Does hair, have, I, you, have you studied that at all? No, I have not. I have not looked at hair at all. But what you notice is you don't see any of the leading candidates who really right. have uh, dramatically receding hairlines. And there's one we wouldn't know. Because yeah, that's true. magic combing. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. You don't know. I mean, but it's it's a really powerful uh, again concept that even down to their hair, these people have to. I guess they're they're playing a game really of trying to get elected, yet still trying to uh, attract maybe a subconscious, you know, uh, need inside of people. That's, that's exactly right, and I think that that's the role that these sort of physical cues play. Uh, you know, another thing that there's been some research by by a professor um, about voice, uh, voice pitch, mm. and Casey Klofstad, and he's found in a number of studies that we tend to prefer candidates with lower-pitched voices. Really? Well, yeah, testosterone. Yeah, you know, I, Right, that's 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 exactly related to yeah. some of those issues, and uh, you know, I, I mean, it's, again, it's crazy. And I heard y'all talk. I think I think y'all mentioned earlier the um, Kennedy Nixon presidential debate. Yeah, yeah. And those sorts of the the um, it was really interesting. The people who saw the debate had a different conclusion about who won than the people who listened to the debate, ah. and that's tr- attributed to. When you're listening, all you, all the only impact you have is, and you know the verb, the words they said, right. is the voice pitch and the intonation and such, and it has a, it has a big effect. So that's something else that people listen to, and you don't you don't hear a lot of candidates uh, at the national on the national stage with these high pitched mm-hmm. voices, which will be um, interesting between because we're also having really one of the first elections with a viable active female candidate that's exactly right so that that will be interesting too i mean if what that plays how that plays out 
That's exactly right. And I've actually found in some research, I haven't published it yet, but it's some research I've been working on that, again, going back to these, these threatening versus non-threatening conditions, that female candidates do a lot a lot better under non-threatening conditions. When you're kind of calling on more group cooperation, the country or the team has to get together and, and really everybody pitch in and do that, more or less aggressive, more um, feminine candidates are more likely to, to do well in a situation like that versus when you're competing with another group, the other mm. country, you know, you're being attacked, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's when people tend to want a more, a more masculine candidate, uh, you know, a more physically dominant candidate. Mm. It's um, it's interesting that you bring up uh, the the voice and and the just the pitch of the voice. I know one of the the blogs, the entries that you just put up was laughing matters during presidential primary debates. So the debates are going to be coming up in a week or two, and um, apparently the laughing, how much we can make somebody laugh, and and how much applause we get as a candidate, that matters. Oh, yeah, very much so. In a debate. Well, with the, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying, in the debate. Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, think about what that is, at least, at least is how I think of it. That is the response that – that is the response of approval to what's being said. So right. it's, it's immediate feedback on that. You know, and people who make us laugh, we connect with. Uh, we don't think they're, you know, uh, above us or better than us, that sort of thing. Um, so that becomes really important in terms of going back to those just initial impressions or those impressions we have a candidate with a candidate has nothing to do with the issues, where they stand on, whatever issue you pick. It's, you know, do I trust this person? Is he or she like me? Uh, you know, those sorts of considerations that become really important. Mm. We and we, you know what we see it. And President Obama is a great example of that. He healthy, skinny. I think he's tall. Um, yes, he is. is he? And but just suave, and yeah. just he he's just so cool. Right. <laughs> it's almost like yeah, he, uh, I want to be cool like him. Oh, that's that's. I think that's exactly right. I I don't remember exactly, but I think I think President Obama is six one, as I recall. Yeah, that seems right. Um, you know, so he's a tall, he's a great height for uh, for a national leader. Makes a lot. You know, he fits perfectly within that set of characteristics that we that we've been talking about. Yeah, and I've and I've I've never looked at this scientifically, but you notice, I think we kind of go back and forth between. These very, which you know, what you refer to as sort of a suave candidate. Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree with what you said about about um, President Obama. You know, uh, President Bush too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not. It's not. He he wasn't somebody you'd call suave. Mm. You know, he was plain, plain spoken. He <laughs> wasn't necessarily what you'd call cool. But no. you know, he was. He he talked pretty straight. And he's he kind of the fun. He's like yeah. the fun frat guy. Yeah, and he was kind of, you know, one of us sort, yeah. sort of, of guys, you know, and you go before that and you had sort of President Clinton. Oh, suave again, of, yeah. Yeah, suave again. Well, and who preceded President Clinton? Well, it was Bush, <laughs> it was President Bush one. And again, I don't think, I'm not, not, I don't want to criticize them in any way, but I don't think that suave is necessarily what you think of when you think of Bush no, one. right, President no. Bush one. And I think we cycle back and forth between these types of uh, presidential personalities uh, because, you know, we have them for a while, and after they've been in office, they've made a lot, you know, 
regardless of of what they've done, they've made a lot of people mad for one reason or another. Yeah. And you know, we just kind of get tired of it, and we're ready to move on to something to something different. And if you take that analysis further, what that means we're going from swab here, right? So maybe somebody who's not <laughs> not quite like that. And <laughs> yeah. I think that's very much what you're seeing. With Trumps of the world, you know, that are very plain spoken, certainly not what you would think of, or at least I would think of as, as suave. They're kind of bombastic and, you know, right of other very aggressive characteristic, personal yeah. characteristics. No, I, I think you're right on. And, um, and two, I mean, just it's just such great insight. I, I, man, I wish we had more time. Everybody, go check out his Psychology Today uh, um, blog. Dr. Greg Murray has a, a great blog there called Caveman Politics. And uh, Dr. Murray, we're going to have you back. We got to have you back just simply to pick your brain. There's so many topics there, like testosterone and leadership. We got to get into that. Uh, Awesome stuff. But I appreciate your insight. Keep up the great work. Dr. Greg Murray, again, you can go find more about him on Psychology Today, Caveman Politics. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we've got uh, Seeing the Good in the World segment coming up, a really uh, awesome story that took place here on BYU campus. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back with Kathy Aiken helping us see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. One of my favorite segments we do on this show is called Seeing the Good in the World. And Kathy Aiken is in charge of it. She helps us go out and find healthy, positive stories that exist. Kathy, what and have you this, found? this kind of may be more in the funny kind of category. Yeah. Uh, do you have any BYU swag? I do. I have you tons do? of what swag. Do you have lots have of good stuff? Lots of jackets yeah. and yeah. wristbands. And... I don't have anything. Don't you? No. Well, Are I'll, you going to share? I'll hook you up. Okay. Would you hook me up, please? <laughs> I'll hook you up. Okay. Well, you know, BYU, BYU football fans especially love their swag, but we found a 16-year-old who lives not far from the BYU campus who may just be the biggest Cougar fan around. 16-year-old Amy Miller is one huge fan of BYU. In fact, her entire family bleeds blue. Well, my family named the dog Cougar, so that's, that's a little bit of an indication. The junior from Alpine, Utah, especially loves BYU football. I just really like going to the games with my family. That's a lot of fun. Amy loves BYU so much, she couldn't wait for the BYU 50 rally to reach Utah. Uh, I decided to look for it when it came to Utah. Me and my brother were getting pretty excited about it. BYU 50 is where a blue box filled with BYU swag is put in a different state each day leading up to the season opener at Nebraska. BYU officials use social media to show where the box is located, usually in a familiar area people in that state would recognize. A box was put out two weeks ago in American Fork, not far from her home. Okay, so we were driving up Main Street um, at the time, and then they tweeted it out, and I could see that it was City Hall because I'd been there earlier that week with my friend just to take pictures. And so we pulled an illegal UE and went back, and we got there pretty fast, so it was good. Once the car was stopped, it was a race to get to the box. Uh, my brother was ahead of me, and he was running as fast as he can. He actually got the box before I had even made it anywhere close, and I fell about five feet from it. It just went down. Don't even really know what happened. What happened was Amy ran too fast and began to stumble. While trying to break her fall, she broke her arm. I thought my knee was what was actually kind of injured, but I figured it was just scraped up, so I stood up, turned around, was excited with my family, and 
Then my dad tried to throw me a t-shirt to put on and I realized that my arm was like Harry Potter arm where he loses all the bones. Amy said she didn't feel the pain until she got to the hospital and doctors had to set her right arm and cast it. BYU football coach Bronco Mendenhall was impressed. When they made me aware of what she did and she broke an arm doing it, I thought, I thought that's, that's so cool in terms of what a fan would do to participate with our team. And so a quick text to David and, and Brad and others just saying, man, let's make this big for her. So big, the entire team, led by Bronco, went to her home to deliver season tickets for her and her family. It was really fun to see her reaction, her family's reaction, and I think our team's reaction. And so when we have a little bit of time and we can step away for an hour just to do something fun, um, it was really, really a cool thing. And her, her expressions were priceless, and to me, uh, that was worth everything. BYU receiver Mitch Matthews was there. It's really special to know that we have fans that love us as much and that um, people love our program as much. It's really cool to see. Uh, it makes us feel good. It makes us want to play harder because we have people that like what we do so much. His shout-out to Amy? To Amy, it would be to heal up and to get the box next year. Uh, it was worth it. <laughs> I don't know. BYU's awesome. <laughs> and you'd do it again? Oh, Definitely. So the Harry Potter arm, I guess, was the best description. They said it looked like an S when you're looking at it. She really had no idea until her dad, like she said, threw the T-shirt, and she went to raise her arm and looked at it and went, oh, I don't think I'm catching Jeez. a T-shirt with this arm. Is that crazy? That is, that now, I know your crazy. adrenaline kicks in, but I I mean, how do you not know your arm is completely broken? Luckily, she didn't get there. I mean, that was just... <laughs> can, you, can you picture it? You know what? But And then she's like, it's worth it. I do it all over. Yeah, she for a box of swag. Yeah, yeah that yeah. must be a, not, a lot Cougar of fans. swag. Yeah. Yeah. She got the best deal. She did. Season tickets. I know. It was great video if you've seen it. it. Literally, the entire team is on her front lawn. She thought just some a couple of people from BYU were coming over to take pictures. She opens the door, and there they are. There's Bronco Mendenhall with crazy. tickets. I mean, yeah. And she's on, like, Mitch Matthews' shoulders or something? Yeah, loving it. That is crazy. Isn't that fun? And the players had so much fun with it. That's what I love to see. They're good sports. You know what? That That's what you need to do. When you, I always have a rule. If you break a, a young fan's arm, mm-hmm. always overcompensate and always yeah and bring the whole team <laughs> so just go with the cast even though you haven't broken your arm say oh well you yeah. need some tickets you mean that's cool <laughs> so they do this this BYU uh, 50, 50 mm-hmm. is in every state every state fact, leading up just, to the opener and I believe like, was, like where are they West Virginia is coming up yeah Nebraska Wyoming. will be the last day because that's where they they start the season on Saturday I cannot believe it's almost here I can't wait well, so Nebraska will be the last day that's and crazy. Uh, what a great I thought I think it's a great idea that to is get a great Cougar idea. fans already for Everyone's it Jazz, they're yeah. all pumped up, yep. ready to go. Yeah, fun. Well, that's uh, that's really cool. Okay, it I'm beats, waiting for my swag. Uh, you know what? For sure. I'm hey, going you, to your you have you have a dog, don't you? I have three. What What are your dogs' names? Cubby, Pepper, and Sassy. <laughs> <laughs> that's not good. That's just sad. <laughs> um, social networking site Next Door has released a list of the most popular dog names in America. Here they are: Buster. Buddy, Buster and Buddy. Uh, Buddy is one of them. Buddy, yeah. by the way, Buddy was the name of my dog till the accident. Um, so, without further ado, here they top ten: Bella, 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 Lucy, Max, Daisy, Bailey, Buddy, Molly, Charlie, Maggie, and Sadie. Hmm. 
We had a Jody, and it was kind of embarrassing when a friend of mine came over to give me a baby gift, and her name was Jody. And I told the dog to sit. She heard and went and sat <laughs> sit, down. Jody. Went, no, not you, <laughs> not the you, dog. Jody. You stand. <laughs> That's Jody. what's hard when you yeah. name it after a person, and that person's but there. Tell me that whole list: Bella, Bella, Lucy, Max, Daisy, Bailey, Buddy. Tell me that doesn't like sound like a Mickey Mouse Club act from the '60s. <laughs> That would be true. Buddy, Bailey, Molly, Charlie, Maggie, or a country band. Mm -hmm. So, um, and guess what? The number one name for a Chihuahua is the most popular Chihuahua name. It's got to be Spanish name, I'm guessing. No, Uh, no, possibly, I guess. Coco. Oh, Coco. I say El Chihuahua. El Chihuahua. Coco. Here, Coco. Coco. Coco Guess what? The number one name for a top for the boxer, the dog boxer. Guess what? His the number one name is boxer. What's the number one boxer name? Rocky. Rocky. Oh, good one. Hey, Rocky. That's a great one. Isn't that cute? I love that, yeah. I mean, if you had a boxer and you named the boxer Daisy. That would not go over well. It would just be embarrassing. <laughs> the poor thing would just go in the corner. <laughs> what are you doing? It's just so sad. Oh. Yeah, we don't have a dog. You know, see, ours are all small. That's why they're wimpy names, though. Yeah. They're uh, multi-poo and two poodles. I had a I had a guy that had a dog, and he, you know what his name was? It was D-O-G. What does that mean? And I'm like, and I asked that. I go, what does D-O-G mean? And he goes, it means dog. And I go, spell it. And he's like, D-O-G. D-O-G. Oh, bad. He named his dog D-O-G. <laughs> D-O-G. D-O-G. I thought you were going to say like D-I-O-G-I Honestly, or something. Honestly, I'm like, how do you spell that? He, I couldn't have fallen into it more. And he's like, D-O-G. <laughs> Dummy. So his name is Dog? Yeah. Your dog's name is Dog. Well, yeah, D-O-G. Yeah, dog. We pronounce it D-O-G. It's pathetic. It's pathetic. All right, we're taking a break, folks. we got to come back. More tools, more ideas. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Man alive we got a great topic coming up today. Holy cow. It's a carryover from a topic we were discussing with uh, Ron Hager um, a few, I think last week or a few weeks ago, where do, do you feel like you have a doctor? When you go to the doctor's office, do you feel like the doctor understands everything about you and your health, your diet, or do they just kind of focus on their functional area? I think you become a number if you have a doctor yeah. that has a lot of – I remember my doctor uh, who delivered my boys. I mean every time I, he'd come in, he goes, now, do you have a daughter? Like, no, I have all boys. I mean every time. <laughs> yeah. I, you've delivered him. Yeah. But he has so many patients. He, had no, See, he couldn't remember. Th- there used to be a day when the doctor just knew you, your family, mm-hmm. your kids. Yeah. My wife's father is a doctor. So all of our doctors knew our my father-in-law. Which actually helped because then you were a member of the fraternity. Uh But what about these doctors today that aren't necessarily, you know, they worry about your diet, but they're not a nutritionist and they're not, they wouldn't know maybe even what diet to necessarily give you. So we're going to be talking about what's called functional medicine, which is simply the idea of 
what if we could create a, a healthcare system where you you had I don't know, maybe a doctor, a functional doctor that could understand different parts, all of the parts. And you might still have to go to a specialist, but you still have one person that's overseeing all of the care with all of the specialists. Instead of just sending you away and you bring back five different files and no one looks at all of the information. We'll be getting into that information in just a minute. In fact, it reminds me of a Brazilian mayor. Did you hear this? This is crazy. A Brazilian mayor accused of living 170 miles away from the town that he's running, right? So he's not even living in his town, but this is in Brazil. And I guess the mayor is accused of stealing funds from schools and running her town via a mobile messenger app. Mm. She's not even running not it even there. by going and showing well, up. She's running it from an app. It's called uh, it's the What's app, and uh, she literally just kind of texts it all in. Well, maybe you could do the show that way do from you your th- house. Hold it. Do you think? Yeah. Totally. I could do it from my bed. I mean, who's going to know you're not here? Well, I guess Ben would know, <laughs> but he probably wouldn't know for like a week. <laughs> I'd be like, "What's wrong with the sound?" Sounds weird. <laughs> How come is Matt? Matt, are you sitting in your bed? We could um, we could shoot video, mm-hmm. do a live stream. Mm-hmm. There's an app for that. There's an app for that. There's always there's an there's app for that. App for there's that. always an app. So I might start running the show distant, if especially if I could make some money. Nothing and you wrong get with that. maybe an extra hour of sleep, so that's worth it. Oh man, that would Excellent. be great. Thank you. <laughs> Got to use that every time. I what's can. that guy's name? It's Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. I keep saying Smithers. It's Mr. Burns. I'm writing it down so I never forget it ever again. Mr. Burns. Can you say excellent one more time? Excellent. Excellent. Let's go to our headlines. Kathy Aiken's on that. The Supreme Court yesterday said Kentucky County Clerk Kim Davis must start issuing same-sex marriage licenses or face contempt charges. Davis had denied the licenses for gay marriage, saying it violated her religious convictions. Over 7,000 emails were released by the State Department last night, emails sent by Hillary Clinton's private email server. Over 100 of those are now considered classified, but Clinton says none were classified when they were sent. Here's Clinton on the email issue. It clearly wasn't the best choice. I should have used two emails, one personal, one uh, for work, um, and I take responsibility for that decision. Officials also said members of the State Department's IT division were unaware that the Secretary of State was using a private email address. GOP presidential contender Ben Carson has moved into a tie with Donald Trump, according to a new new Monmouth University poll, at least in Iowa. The two are tied at 23 percent. Political analyst John Heileman has an idea why Iowa voters like Trump. But the thing they like most about him is the sense that he is not politically correct, that he speaks his mind, not necessarily the truth, but that he's telling you what he thinks at any moment with no filter. In the same poll, Carly Fiorina came in third with 10 percent of the GOP vote, the only other candidate in double digits. August will go down as the Dow's worst month in five years. Yesterday, the Dow closed out the biggest monthly percentage drop since May of 2010. 
U.S. oil prices, meanwhile, continued a three-day surge, inching back to nearly $50 a barrel. At a Glacier Conference at the Glacier Conference in Alaska yesterday, President Obama said the world isn't moving fast enough to combat climate change and said if the world doesn't act quickly, entire nations will suffer severe problems. Obama also said politicians who don't believe climate change is, is real are living on their own shrinking island. Speaking of President Obama, this is one of those where you go, really, was that an important question? <laughs> well, one of the reporters asked what his favorite flavor of bagel is. Really? I mean, really? What was his answer? Poppy seed. Interesting. Poppy seed, he, he said. He won't pass a drug test. Nope. <laughs> when pressed further, Obama added he just likes a schmear on the poppy seed bagel, though locks and capers are sometimes okay. Mm. You know, when I used to cover the Utah Jazz, yeah. if anybody would have asked uh, Jerry Sloan that question. What would they have done? He would have, he would have freaked have... out. Like, are really, is me? that a question you well, want to ask me today? Do you oh, remember he did what not they... like stupid questions. Do you remember what they asked Bill Clinton? Which Briefs or boxers? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which That's time? all important. Very, like, very important information. A UBI, is, as we used to say. Useless bit of information. Yeah. A UBI. A little UBI. A UBI. Do you feel the ground shaking? Yes. What is that? It's not an earthquake. They're drilling outside. Oh. I just noticed that right when you said that. BYU I've campus, never been in we're an starting to drill for oil on campus. See mm-hmm. if we can't uh, get some income streams <laughs> coming in. No big deal. But it does make our building. That's how. That's how... That's how strong and uh, robust this building is. It functions as one entity. Mm-hmm. So if one part of it moves, the entire building the whole, moves. Yes. So wow, if we really talk shaking. like this. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of nice. It's actually. I guess that's what an earthquake. Have also, you ever been in an earthquake? No. I yes, I have. You I have? slept through it. Oh. And then I woke up and stuff was moving in my room. <laughs> And my wife's like, "Did you feel that?" I'm like, yeah. No, is this what they're doing right next door? Uh-huh. They're is building. Okay. They're building a new building. Yeah, the, the uh, basketball, basketball center, new basketball facility. You know, which they desperately need. So, just if you hear a little vibration, mm. not a big deal. I mean, I am a little lightheaded now, a little dizzy, putting my head between my knees, trying to breathe through this. <sighs> no, it's good. It's all good. Luckily, we have a doctor on the phone, and our own great professor, Ron Hager, will be joining us in a minute. We're going to be talking about functional medicine, part two. We started this discussion about a week or so ago, and it's really about what are some of the things we could be doing to make sure that we're getting the best health care we can, and how could we demand our doctors play maybe a bigger part of our medical life? Instead of just seeing them for a few minutes, is there a way that we as just, you know, the average patient could be pushing for a healthier view of medicine, a more holistic view. We'll get to that in just a minute. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about your uh, your medical care, your physical health with Dr. Ron Hager. Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences here in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. His expertise is chronic disease and prevention, and uh, 
He's here today to talk to us about what we call functional medicine. We've also, um, we're going to bring on the phone, and again, we talked, we were talking about this, I think, was it last week? Two weeks ago, we started this thing, and uh, it got, we went, there was so much to get into, we, we could hardly even touch on it. But we're also going to go to Texas, and uh, to Demet, Texas, and talk to Dr. Rob Adams. He's a physician there practicing in Texas. Uh, Rob, are you with us? Yes, I am. Dr. Rob Adams, good to have you here. And uh, talk to us uh, again with Dr. Ron Hager, Dr. Ron Adams. One's a physician, one is a scholar studying all of this. We we wanted to talk about functional medicine, and we thought it would be a really good idea, Rob, if we had you as a physician just kind of re-explain what functional medicine is. Um, you know, it's, Curveball. Yeah. Um, it's it's a you know I think it's you know when I started going into medicine it was something that I thought was the approach that would be taken generally um, and you know it's really looking at different I mean they have six like core principles which uh, basically understanding like the biochemistry of of each individual. Um, and then having a patient-centered approach rather than disease-centered. And we talked about, like, you know, the interesting nomenclature of functional medicine. Is there, like, a dysfunctional medicine that came up last time? <laughs> yeah. And and really, that's, uh, I think, like, point number two, it, it brings up that because a lot of times we end up chasing, like, the disease, and we have kind of a disease-centered approach. Um, and... Uh, than really trying to balance the internal and external aspects of the body, whether it's, and some people call it like mind, body, spirit, um, or the, uh, you know, just the, the spiritual aspect of, of that and how that can interplay with those, uh, uh, with the, the physiology. And then um, uh, just how each of those internal physiologic factors can, can interplay together. And then um, uh, just promoting the things that will bring about health of the whole system uh, uh, generally. And uh, one of the things, I mean, there, there are a handful of things that I have told people about as far as medicine when they come and ask me questions, what should I do, what should I eat? And I will tell them, I'll give them like general, like, uh, you know, principles like this is this is what you should do to not be uh, obese or to help control your diabetes or I have people all the time they come in and they feel absolutely miserable and I do some tests and I'm like you know what if you would uh, control your blood sugar or if you would uh, stop smoking or uh, do some of these other things that you'd think you know um, would be fairly intuitive then you would feel better and when they do that it's it's kind of interesting how much better they will feel mm. Um, it's it's like but that like probably blows their mind. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, like what a what a novel idea to yeah. to work on something like that at that level. So yeah, functional like, medicine, you're saying, it, it's a mix of a bunch of different areas, but it's really basically holistic kind of medical approach where it's patient centered. It's it's not disease centered. It's try it's more preventative. It's more proactive. It's more whole body instead of just one function of the body. Yeah, like you come in complaining about a, a certain disease, and that's people usually 
they don't want to go to the doctor unless they have something that drives them there, whether right. it's pain or, or something else. And uh, one of the analogies that uh, functional medicine, their, their approach is like a tree, you know. Um, we go in complaining of, of diseases like leaves on a tree, but each branch of medicine, whether it's, uh, you know, say pulmonology or cardiology, they'll look at that leaf and say, based on their background and their training, that shortness of breath, say, would be caused by by certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a pulmonologist might say, well, you know, do they have asthma? Do they have emphysema? Do they have uh, pulmonary, like lung, lung fibrosis? But a cardiologist would be thinking, well, do they have heart failure? Are they having a heart attack? Yeah. You know, what's causing that shortness of breath? Um, and they, they really... You know, they're different branches from that tree, and they they will have similar leaves. But what's if you follow those branches down into the trunk? You know, what's what what's the roots that are causing that leaf to to grow and to manifest and mm. and to become an, an issue and a problem? And in principle, like like the short of it, that's the functional medicine type of approach. Yeah, and Ron Ron, oh sorry, not to interrupt. Ron brought up a really interesting. Um, I guess profile that that it like because we're so in this reactive mode, we kind of wait till we're coughing something up <laughs> yeah. before yeah. before we we deal with some of the other kind of basic profiles of health. Talk about some of that data you brought in about a low risk profile. Well, uh, Matt, there's there's a lot of uh, epidemiology research out there. Epidemiology is is, is kind of a, a a branch or field that. Uh, uh, studies disease distributions in populations, and so an epidemiologist would want to know, for example, something like heart heart disease or stroke or cancer, uh, you know, population based conditions. You know, what's causing this? You know, yeah. uh, so they are at kind of asking what's the root cause, you might say. But a lot of the research, when you combine it together, uh, you can begin to understand uh, what some of these researchers might call a low risk profile. So a profile is, you know, what does the population look like who are getting disease compared to what does the population or the profile look like of the population who are not huh. getting the disease. And when you when you kind of pull all that together, you see that the subjects who were classified as low risk uh, were, for example, not currently smoking or had never been a smoker. Right. Um, they had a BMI, a body mass index, which is basically a ratio of height to weight. Of, of under 25, which incidentally is the cut point for what you might call overweight. Hmm. Uh, they get a half a drink of alcohol per day, uh, so moderate alcohol consumption. They also engage uh, in a minimum of a half hour a day of moderate to vigorous activity. It doesn't necessarily have to be formal exercise, yeah. but they're doing something integrating something into their day for at least a half hour. It could be even something as simple as brisk walking. They also have a healthy diet, and so they're known, for example, you know, the question becomes, well, what is a healthy diet? Uh, These subjects who are in the low-risk profile have a diet that's, you know, higher than the average consumption for things like cereal fiber, um, for uh, healthy fats and oils like uh, marine, you know, fish oils, oils, the, the N3 fatty acids. They have a high ratio of polyunsaturated to saturated fat, so they're getting more, uh, plant-based oils than yeah. there are animal-based fats. 
and it's low in trans fat and low in glycemic load, which, as Rob said, is you know something to help you uh, regulate your blood sugar. So th- that's it. I mean, that, and, that's the high, that's the healthy profile. That, that's the with low, low risk. That's the low risk profile, and that profile has been shown to have as much as what's called eighty percent attributable risk. So attributable risk refers to what might happen in a given study. So uh, if, if, if there was 80% attributable risk, as a large group of people are followed over many years, uh, you know, a certain number of them are going to develop disease. Right, right. Attributable risk says that if everybody had, had participated in the low-risk profile, 80% of the disease that was seen could have been avoided. Oh, my heavens. So we're talking about some major opportunities here to well, prevent that, disease. Well, then I'm sure everybody on earth does this. You would think so, wouldn't you? What percentage of population are low profile? In the United States, Matt, three to four so, percent are doing those, uh, those things I just mentioned. So, so let me ask you, so, well, so what then would my doctor, if my doctor was practicing functional medicine, or I guess if as a system, a healthcare system, we were practicing functional medicine, what would be the focus of the system? Not disease correction, uh, not disease uh, prescription, I guess, or um, fixing the disease. It would yeah, be preventing it. It would be getting, it would be pushing people into this profile. Well, yeah. I mean, gently, yeah. lovingly. Yeah, it, it, encouraging, it, it actually would be. Educating. And, and, and it, it's not necessarily to the exclusion, say, of, of, uh, of, of medicine in terms of, uh, like a like a prescription, right? I mean, in some cases that may be necessary, but one of the one one of the problems, and and again, uh, Rob mentioned this, is that you know a pulmonologist and a cardiologist see symptoms coming from different places, and right. so they have their unique ways to treat those, which is oftentimes uh, prescription based. So now you get a person mm-hmm. who's beginning to take uh, a variety of medications that uh, all of a sudden it becomes. Uh, Counter uh, well, intuitive. It, 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 it actually becomes impossible uh, to understand yeah. how those medications are going to interact with each other because the variability that can that can happen in one person for one medication, uh, you you begin to combine other medications with that, the variability becomes exponential, and you can't even begin to understand it. And that, but see, that's yeah. what Rob was talking about. And Rob will give you a couple minutes to answer this. But you you're a small town doc. Who yeah. And because of being a small-town doc in Texas, it affords you a little more opportunity to be with your client, a little more time. So you, you actually are probably trying to push the profile more than just a reaction to symptoms. Yeah, and it's like really one of the benefits of, of being here and um, just the uh, setup that they have. And it gives me uh, like considerably more time than... Uh, some of the other people that I uh, have have worked with and and gone through residency with, I, I hear stories from them, and they're really uh, the the system for medicine that we have now is really, you know, I I feel like we get categorized as and put as almost you know hamsters turning wheels mm-hmm. and and cranking out patients, and and that's how uh, reimbursement can be generated, but being at this facility, I have considerably more time than some of the colleagues that I've talked with to be able to discuss with patients like, this is what 
you can do. These are some changes that you can make. These are um, things that you can do to promote your own health and optimize the situation that you're in. And it is. I mean, people will come in because they can't remember their own medicine. Yeah. You tell them, bring in your medicines, and they'll they'll come in like with uh, a grocery bag of medicines or some other little satchel that they wow. take with them to each yeah. place. And, and it's got all their medicines in there, and like you have to just rifle through it. And it is. I mean, there's so many... Uh, um, you know, interactions that, that can happen and side effects um, that, that can occur. Uh, I see people all the time, physicians that will have patients, and it generally happens this way if you have an ICU setting where you can stop like, you know, 90, 95% of their medicines because it becomes so difficult to ascertain what is going on yeah. with them. Are there are the medicines that they're taking causing the renal failure? Is that causing some of the uh, like angioedema or fluid like in their lungs or like really like what is going on here? And just like keep them on say the antibiotics and and really stop everything, mm-hmm. and see how things like play out. And then uh, I mean, and it's almost like. Uh, you know, playing a video game and pushing the reset button yeah. and see like, okay, do well, over. Let's, yeah. Let's see, see how things fall yeah. out. Cause they, they may have accumulated those medicines over several years yeah. and decades. And, uh, and, and nobody really has, uh, an environment where they can control them and monitor them enough oh. and say like, you know, we've got a nurse that's going to be there all the time and, you know, we can keep a close eye on them. Well, and then we create more and more complex systems or issues that I mean I, I've seen it. I've seen it with clients. I've seen I've seen them being prescribed things for psychological issues that were actually causing other issues. And I mean, and their issues were really being created more by hormones than psych, psychiatric issues. And honestly, and then other yeah. problems and and then sexual dysfunction then marriages fall apart and then and you see this crazy complexity man functional medicine is really um is is something we got to figure out let's take a break come back i'd love to get into some ideas for what you think we got we could be doing and and hear from the two good doctors again uh, dr ron hager who's joining us dr rob adams who's a physician down in texas we are talking about a more holistic, a more healthy approach to uh, medicine, maybe a different paradigm. And keep, may, you know, maybe the real, real reason we're doing this is so that you, as a consumer, as a patient, can start to ask different questions, demand different things from your physician, a more holistic view. I mean, it is your health, right? We'll get into that when we come back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, one of the themes that we have, I think, every week on this show is this simple idea that nothing is just simple cause, simple effect. It seems like there's multiple causes, multiple effects. And as we're sitting here trying to discuss, you know, your health care system, 
uh, your doctors and how doctors function. It's more than just a bunch of doctors trying to make money on you. It, it, this is complex stuff, right? I mean, these are good people trying to figure it out. And they're, they've been specifically designated into specialties with subspecialties and sub-subspecialties. And the system, you know, we're trying to understand the whole elephant by having somebody be an expert in elephant podiatry. And you're probably not going to understand a whole system like an elephant just by understanding its feet. So we got to figure out how to do the whole thing. And the, the name for that, um, according to Dr. Ron Hager and Dr. Rob Adams that we're learning, is called functional medicine, which is where we take a more holistic approach where it's it's a more patient-centered approach instead of just disease-centered approach, where biochemistry is understood, not just the physiology, but the biochemistry. It's a whole system. It's internal versus just external. And apparently, Rob, you're practicing now, really, in Texas. You may not have normally just gone to Texas, but you needed to go pay off student loans. Um, do you, you? I'm hearing that there are doctors that are trying hard to push more of this functional medicine approach. Yeah. And they're, uh, I mean, you hear, there's a a group, the International uh, Society for Functional Medicine, I think, I think is the name of it, where, uh, and there there are a handful of different people that promote functional medicine. Uh, You know, you can get a master's in functional medicine, but actually the one that is, um, Championed by physicians, and that where they can actually do some of the the studies and tests and things like that. Is I think it's the International Society for Functional Medicine. They have a handful of people. It's interesting to go and, and listen to them. Um, whether they're family medicine, uh, um, I've seen one that was a, a, a she did OB gyn and she just got burnt out. Um, she thought it was fun. She loved delivering babies. She loved doing the procedures and things like that, some of the things that will draw people into subspecialties. But then when she went into her clinic and was taking care of some of the gyne aspects, she noticed so many chronic diseases, uh, and I think the number she gave was like 80, 80% yeah. of her patients were chronic diseases, and she just was not able to help them very much. Yeah. She heard about functional medicine. She really got involved in that, uh, and she's been doing it for the last 10 years, and she found that she was able to help a significant number of those patients and spend time with them, uh, enough time to be able to uh, get them help and um, give them the thing that they were looking for, really, when they came to the physician, um, trying to trying to get alleviation of some of their symptoms. Yeah. So. I have a I have a really a real life example that's that's impacted me recently. So my son uh, comes back from two years abroad in Mexico. He he wheezes when he breathes. His nose whistles. <laughs> He's always got a clogged nose. Um, I'm convinced he has some allergies. Right? That he's he's got some allergies. I was uh, we had family members that had a history of um, sinus issues, kind of chronic sinus problems. So I thought maybe that's part of it. And he goes into the doctor. They check his sinuses. Sinus is great. He has a deviated septum. And let's schedule surgery. And I'm like, okay, wow. okay, well, maybe. No, right. Yeah. Right, okay. He's, I mean, a deviated septum is pretty obvious, very physical, very external, easily diagnosed. And 
he also has allergies and he's always stuffed up. So what my concern was, and I, the minute they said, yeah, we're scheduling surgery, I'm like, what? We don't yeah. even know what's going on yet. Why are we cutting you open now? Um, and everyone thought I was crazy but because, well, he's obviously got a deviated septum. Well, sure, but that's not going to solve yeah. congestion. Well, he must have got the deviated septum while he was in Mexico. Now. Exactly. Yeah. All of a sudden, I'm like, holy cow. And then on top of that, he's got a bug. He's got probably a yeah. Mexican worm somewhere. And, you know, everyone's like, anyway, I just sit there and I think, okay, even if we're right about the deviated septum, which is easy to diagnose, I guess. It doesn't mean it's going to get rid of congestion and allergies. And so why don't we just take some time, understand the whole system, and then figure out what we want to do. I'm pretty sure if he fixes his deviated septum, he'll breathe a little better, except for congestion and allergies and other things. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I've had family members like that, too. Like one did go through surgery and had her... um, gallbladder removed and uh, continued to have pain. I mean, this was years yeah. of pain and her right upper quadrant classic for uh, gallbladder issues. And I was just going through resident, like finishing med school, going through residency, They're asking me questions. And I was like, ah, you know, I mean, it's from what I've, the info that I've been fed, it sounds like they're on the right track. Well, she gets surgery done years later still pain she cuts out dairy and the pain goes away Hmm. um it was you know she had uh uh, an adverse reaction to the the dairy she'd never had right like what you would think for lactose intolerance with the you know uh diarrhea and some of those symptoms but um there uh are some proteins in the milk that you can have difficulty with and so not just the lactose, which is uh, like a, a sugar, um, or the lactate, uh, but, you know, the uh, uh, some proteins can give you some adverse reactions. And, and so I'm, uh, it was like the, you know, she had some, some problems with that. And so, I mean, and that would have been something she could have maybe not needed to have yeah. surgery done. Well, and maybe, but maybe what it is, too, is if you go to four different specialists, you'll have four different answers. And yeah. they all might be right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe her, I don't know if her gallbladder still needed to be out. But um, I don't know. It's, that's why I guess so. it's so hard because sometimes we don't, sometimes we do have a deviated septum and we might be allergic to milk and we might be having other issues just because it's seasonal and we don't even know. And so what do we do, Dr. Ron Hager? What should I do as a patient to try to push a holistic view of my health and to get myself all, I mean, to demand some help a little bit more on becoming this low risk profile. You know, what we've been talking about with some of these problems or conditions that are easily diagnosed uh, just kind of reminds me that a lot of people think that uh, chronic diseases, the major chronic diseases, which by the way, account for about 78% of our healthcare cost burden. Mm. Um, so that that's another reason this is a big issue is because it's a financial issue. But a lot of people think that these types of chronic diseases are genetically determined. And and that's that's true and it's not true all at the same time. Uh, and it re- kind of reminds me of what we've been talking about with a deviated septum. A person has a deviated septum, which is usually not a problem yeah. unless You're congested. They, they, they start to have other issues mm-hmm. and – and fixing the deviated septum isn't the root cause of the problem. So genetics 
to some respect, isn't the root cause of the problem uh, either. We have, we actually experienced something, you know, because the human genome hasn't really changed, you know, for millennia. It's been the same. So why now are we experiencing so many problems? And a lot of uh, experts call this evolutionary discord, where our our genes are incompatible with our environment yeah, or our behaviors. Yeah. Ex- yeah, you know. So, uh, so this has actually led, you know, with with, uh, with all of the research now being done in genetics, it's led to, you know, opportunities and potential for things like designer drugs, where a person can be treated with a drug specific to their genetic makeup. But again, uh, that's not really the answer to the problem. Right. Uh, so. You know, we are eating foods, for example, today that were not even available. <laughs> like a to, Twinkie. <laughs> to, to our ancestors. Yeah. Uh, we are living in environments where we sit, where we're sedentary, uh, where, we, where we smoke or where we drink too much alcohol. Yeah. That those opportunities did not exist. And therefore, we did not experience the diseases we're experiencing today. So it's more yeah, it's, it's it's more of a discord than it is, um, you know, a, a, a genetic cause. Now we all have weaker genes called polymorphisms that may predispose us to a disease. I liken this to kind of a morbid uh, example of having a loaded gun pointed at your head, which is harmless. Yeah. It's not until the triggers pull right, that, until... th- that things become a problem, yeah. and and our genes are like a loaded gun, but but and. Until they express or misexpress, until the trigger's pulled, there's not usually a problem. And what researchers are finding out is that the things that pull the trigger are the things we eat or All this or, other, or, or, or the things we the smoke or, or they're, yeah. they're environmental or behavioral. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I've, I've seen this explained like uh, a term that has come up is they call it omics. Um, and, and really it starts with genomics uh, is the first of the omics and and that's what uh, Ron was talking about. Our, our genes haven't haven't really changed. Uh, I mean, there's not been a significant shift in that. But those genomics get translated, and our body makes proteins, and they call that the next omics would be proteomics. Um, the proteins get made, our, our body gets uh, put into a structure, and that influ- influences our metabolism, and that's the next omics is uh, metabolomics. Now, that's where things start to, uh, and I mean, that, that hasn't changed. Our metabolism hasn't changed. But the environment that that gets combined with uh, leads, I mean, that, you combine the, the metabolomics with the environment, and that leads to the phenomics or the, like, uh, characteristics, the observable characteristics that result from, like, the genotype with the environment. And that's where there has been a change um, environmentally, that environmental change. I mean, the genomics hasn't changed, uh, so our proteomics haven't really changed, our metabolomics haven't changed, but our phenomics have. You know, we're having heart attacks and strokes mm. and obesity and diabetes. And, and that, that it, so the environment um, that those genes and proteins and metabolism are exposed to, that's the thing that, that has changed. And uh, uh, like a, a word that, well, actually it's two words that I came across is there's been this nutritional transition, um, especially since the Industrial Revolution, 
where we've been able to refine carbohydrates to a much uh, larger degree. Uh, before that, I mean, we really weren't able. I mean, you have to put a put a mule on a grindstone and have it do some laps. But right. now we have like steam and now gas and and some other things, and so we're able to refine uh, sugar from cane, um, flour from wheat, and uh, other products from from corn at such a high high degree that it has significantly changed our environment because of this nutritional transition and our our, our, you know, pretty functional genes and proteins and metabolism have been exposed to this environment that they've never come across before. Yeah. And and there, I mean, that's that's where the problem lies, and we see it manifest in the in the phenomics. Um, uh, you know, I, I was reading a book uh, that talked about they recounted uh, how Albert Schweitzer went uh, to a country in West Africa, and he. He got there, and he was he was one busy guy. Yeah. Um, for the first uh, couple months, he saw about two thousand people. Yeah, I think about two thousand people in, in, in the first couple months, and then about forty people a day for uh, the next forty years or so. He was taking care of just all kinds of endemic stuff, malaria and leprosy and elephantitis and dysentery wow. and things like that. He never saw. Um, a case of appendicitis in 40 years. Yeah. Um, but after about 40 years, he saw his first case. He got his, he got like the Nobel Peace Prize, I think. Um, um, but he, uh, uh, it wasn't until uh, that population had been exposed to Western diet for a couple of decades when he started seeing these other problems. Um, uh, then, uh, and uh, this book recounted somebody else that went to the the coast of Labrador, which is East Canada, like up near the Arctic Circle. It extends up pretty high, um, and uh, he he reports the same thing. Um, but once they started importing the sugar, molasses, white flour, white rice, some of those other things like uh, salt fish or pork, that's when they started seeing the obesity, the diabetes, Interesting, cardiovascular. Yeah. I mean, they didn't even see stroke. Um, they didn't. They saw no cancer for 40 years, um, and then after that, they start seeing certain types of cancer mm. start popping up in the population. Uh, and uh, well, I guess that's it too, right? That's the is that like the Heyerdahl syndrome or whatever? I can't remember what we call it. Where we it's hard to it's hard to explain something that you're the, you're a part of creating. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You you end up creating yeah. the problem, and you. Uh, that's Einstein's quote. You can't uh, solve a problem you created at the same level of thinking you were at when you created it. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of what's going on with our medical world. We've only got about a minute left, but what are we supposed to do? What should I just do as an average person yeah. with my doctor? How could I push my doctor, push the envelope a little bit more with just my general practitioner? Uh, I, I find a lot of times people have to like I'll, I'll tell them things, but I can't get them to stop smoking. You know, yeah. they they you can only uh, I, I tell people like I'm not going to take care of you if you're not going to I'm not going to be the only one on this team. You know, uh, I need buy in from you. But some of the simple things that I tell people is don't ever drink a calorie. Um, don't uh, and then be careful with the carbohydrates. Like I've heard Ron say cardboard cardboard carbohydrates mm-hmm. um i'll call them and i, I have to be careful because my little boy is 
probably listening to this, but I, I, I call them crapohydrates. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not even like. They're not of use. Yeah. yeah. They're 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 just you know Waste. some some form of glucose to um, to stop us from being hungry. Yeah. But really, eating vegetables with lots of color. That's that's the. The other basic thing, and I don't know if Ron has anything else to add to that. What would you say, Ron? And what what else could we do just in a, less than a minute well, to push the, to? The, there are there are a number of things, but uh, if a person's a smoker, they should stop. I mean, yeah. that's the number one cause of premature death worldwide is tobacco use and smoking. Uh, and and if a person's overweight, uh, I know there have been movements in the past, you know, to say, well, I'm happy where I'm at, and mm-hmm. and and and, the, and you know, and you can find a piece of research to support anything you want to. Support yeah. and there's even research to say that obesity or overweight is not that big a deal. But when you look at all the research together, it is. And I read a study recently that showed that 65% of doctors who are treating obese patients uh, don't even ever say anything to them about weight loss. So there are things that wow. physicians can do. There are things that uh, patients can do. Uh, there are things that governments can do. And 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 you know yeah. some some governments have been more proactive in this. I know like in Denmark they 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 ban the use of uh, trans fat in commercially prepared foods. And with that single act, they saw heart disease and stroke rates go way down. Hmm. So I'm not necessarily saying, you know, we need more government oversight, but I'm saying there's a multifaceted approach here where everybody, like Rob says, gets on the team and buys in and takes a little bit of the responsibility. But ultimately, Matt, it rests with the individual. It rests with us. It's your body. You've got to take the time to figure out what works best for you. Yeah. It's not someone else's responsibility. Yeah, and you can't hope government or even your doctor is going to catch everything. I think it's great advice. Again, Dr. Ron Hager, we appreciate you. Dr. Rob Adams, thanks for the insight. And everybody, push push on your doctors more and find doctors that go go look for a doctor that's a functional uh, medical expert, somebody that's going to look at your whole system Make sure you're also, when you go see a specialist, you bring the information back. Full circle. So somebody's looking at the whole picture. It's complicated, folks, but uh, your health is worth it. We'll take a break. Come back. Wrap up this uh, second hour of the show. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's it's so complicated, isn't it? But again, it's it's like everything we talk about on this show. We can get mad at Obama messed up the healthcare system, but the healthcare system is already fairly messed up, and even though it's it's the best there is, the problem is. Who's who's driving the ship, right? Who who has a really educated view about all of your health issues from your food you're consuming, your diet to um, your exam? Like how many times have you known you have a family history of something and you don't necessarily bring it up with your doctor? Um, I have uh, a family history of prostate um, cancer. I have a family history of glaucoma. And that's not discussed when I go see my doctor every time. 
But it seems like it should be top of mind of my doctor's head. Every other thing else I'm going there for, plantar fasciitis, whatever. But if so if, if I am going to live in denial, and I'm not going to bring it up because it's probably not important because I don't want to go there, then my doctor's supposed to know. But the, the amazing thing is we'll then be surprised when I have glaucoma or prostate cancer in five or 10 years or 20 years. At some point, we have to be responsible for ourselves and we need to push our medical professionals to, to look at us in a more holistic way. Uh, I gave you the example of my son and, I mean, I, again, I'm, I have no doubt he needs, you know, he has a deviated septum. I have no doubt. But that's the easiest thing we can fix. Can we figure out why he has a chronic cold? Can we figure out why he gets headaches with the chronic cold? Can we figure this out? Well, you know, just a deviated septum. Let's just go in and cut that, fix that, scrape that. Okay. Yeah, that'll be better. And the crazy, let me just tell you what I believe. In the end, he'll get better. He'll get 20% better. And he'll, he'll feel 100% better. And all of a sudden it's solved. Problem solved. Except he still has the same allergies. Right? More complex solutions, folks. We need it and we need to push. It's not enough to just, you know, blame everyone else and blame Obama for our health care problems and blame everything for everything. The reality is, is if you're not pushing on your doctors for a more holistic approach... And if they don't know, if they don't want to find out when they just referred you to go to another doctor, if they're not dying to find out everything that you found out in that meeting, then we're missing something here. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break. Helping you try to find the good in the world. It might start with just managing your health care better. Stick with us. We'll be right back. A whole other hour of the Matt Townsend Show after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where we try to give you the tools, everything you need to lead your life. I mean, it's one thing to go listen to the news all day, and half the time you're like, I guess I needed to know about Iran problems. But in the end, it also might be good for you to know about your own health and about what you should be doing. That's why we like to take a little bit uh, longer on some of these interviews and give you a chance to learn. Today we got a great uh, topic coming up. Dr. Brian Willoughby will be joining us. He's... Um, He's one of our favorites on the show. He comes in regularly. He's here on campus at Brigham Young University and is a professor, assistant professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young, and he's going to be talking to us today about cinematic romance, those incredible romantic stories that you see um, on camera, right? I mean, what you think is romantic is like Tom Cruise. Telling what was the what was her name? Um, you, you complete you me. You complete me. You complete me. Guess how long that lasted? Not very long. About a week. <laughs> then it's like, will you take the garbage out, please? 
Take the garbage out. I will. I will. I already know it needs to go out. You already said that. I know, but when are you going to take it? I will get to it. I will take it out when I want to take it out. Well, I want it out now because it stinks. Oh, my word. <laughs> so you're saying romance only lasts for a week? Mm-hmm. Last and then about it's over? <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Oh, boy. Here's the young <laughs> kid. Don't get, not getting yeah, Ben, now. you got a question. <laughs> you think it's going to last longer than a week? Well, yeah. It's not. Just get that in your head. Not to be rude. Because that sounded <laughs> really rude. rude. <laughs> Hey, uh, there's a really funny story. Did you see this story of this guy, this poor live shot? They always see, you always see, you know, the live shot being taken at the beach as they're talking about, you know, shark attacks or whatever. Well, there's a, <laughs> there's a story uh, where a weather anchor man from San Diego, Brad Willis, is doing a live shot. And this is just the audio from it. Let's see if you can figure out what's happening. Extreme heat. So if you're going to practice... Uh... <laughs> Do that again. Just a live shot. And this huge bug flies. Couldn't right. get enough of it. Take a look. Because of the extreme heat. So if you're going to practice. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he just, That's a girly guy. It's a total girly guy. <laughs> uh, apparently Brad turned in his man card <laughs> that day. But this bug, you can just see it. It's huge. Oh. It looks like a hummingbird. And it flies in <laughs> right in front of his face. <laughs> and he gave up. See, that's why romance oh. is such a fake idea. Because the minute a lady sees that, uh-huh. she's like, Ugh. Oh, where's that man gone? Mm. Boy, you were sure afraid of that big beetle. <laughs> but Matt, you know what love is, right? What is love? I'm sorry. Don't. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Yeah, that's a crock. <laughs> Man, okay, answer me. That. I love Did, that line. Do men have a harder time saying they're sorry than women? Yes. So true. It's so true. You know why? Because why? it's a sign of weakness is what I'm guessing. Well, hierarchy, yeah. So when men communicate, we tend to communicate in a way to always protect our position, right? So to say I'm sorry would mean I'm below you. I really blew that. Yeah. But that's kind of – I think that's like – that was evolutionarily why we would do it. So mm. we didn't want to look weak. Okay. So – but the problem is – we got to, guys got to learn to do it. Yeah. They also got to learn to take a beetle without face. freaking out. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I got to go now and look at the video. By the way, so answer that. Is that true, Kathy? Does love mean that you don't have to say you're sorry? No. You, ha- you should say you're sorry. Darn it. Darn it. Yeah. I try to tell my boys that you, you apologize when you've done something wrong. A woman needs to hear that you've done something wrong and you apologize. What what if I what if I just say, look, you have really high expectations, <laughs> and I have fallen below those. No, so I you think, know what I think I mean. the word sorry uh, means something. Yeah, it does. It really does. But sometimes it's hard for men to say that. It's like it's hard. what's that show of Blindside when I get Sandra Bullock says something and, and uh, her husband said, "Whoa, that was like vinegar. Mm-hmm. That must have tasted like vinegar." And I think for men, it, it tastes taste like it. vinegar. Yeah. Having to say you're sorry. Yeah, it does. Just say it. Well, yeah. Sorry. My bad. I'm a loser. I knew it. <laughs> See, then we say it that way, and you're like, okay. Like, okay, great. You uh, admitted it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, loser. Now we move on. <laughs> now that you're beneath me. It's so true. <laughs> it's pathetic. So we're going to get into that in a minute uh, with Dr. Brian Willoughby. Romance, is it really what we think it is? But first, let's get to the person you always have to say sorry to. Yeah, Kathy sure. Aiken. 
Good morning, everyone. Kim Davis, a Kentucky County clerk, has defied yesterday's Supreme Court ruling, forcing her to issue same-sex marriage licenses. This morning, Clark denied two same-sex couples the licenses at her office in Moorhead, saying she was acting under God's authority. Davis's refusal refusal could get her fined or a possible jail sentence. Pope Francis today called on priests to pardon women who have had abortions as well as the doctors who performed them. With the upcoming Holy Year, the Pope said he has given priests the discretion to absolve the sin of abortion to those with a contrite heart seeking forgiveness. The State Department last night released more than 7,000 emails sent by Hillary Clinton's private email server. Over 100 of those are now classified. Officials say none were deemed classified when they were sent. That's something Clinton has already stated. Here's attorney Bradley Moss who has handled national security cases. Will she likely be prosecuted for it? Probably not. What you have is information that is now being deemed classified by certain parts of the government. State Department is disputing some aspects of that and so it's not quite clear that she should have known this was classified let alone if it was in fact classified at the time. Officials also said members of the State Department's IT division were unaware that the Secretary of State was using a private email address. A new poll out of Monmouth University says GOP presidential contender Ben Carson has moved into a die with Donald Trump at 23 percent. Carly Fiorina is the only other candidate to come in with double digits with 10 percent of the vote. The next GOP debate is scheduled for September 16th at the Ronald Reagan Library. President Obama yesterday said the world isn't moving fast enough to come back climate change. Obama is in Alaska at a climate change conference and said if things don't change, we will, quote, condemn our children to a world they will no longer have a capacity to repair. The suspected gunman who murdered Texas police officer Darren Goforth emptied his 40 caliber pistol, shooting the deputy 15 times. Here's Harris County, Texas District Attorney Devin Anderson. This crime is not going to divide us. This crime is going to unite us. 30-year-old Shannon Miles is charged with capital murder and will undergo a psychological exam as part of the investigation. Three years ago, Miles was found mentally incompetent to stand trial on a felony assault charge. The NFL and Tom Brady failed to reach a settlement yesterday on Deflategate. Judge Richard Berman said he'll make a ruling in the case maybe as early as today. And what a great story to end on, Matt. Hundreds of Jimmy Carter fans camped overnight this past weekend so they could hear the former president teach Mm. Sunday school. Oh, neat. The crowds have increased after learning Carter's cancer has spread to his brain. But the 90-year-old said he would stick with his commitment of teaching Sunday school at the Marantha Baptist Church. The first Sunday after his announcement, more than 800 people showed up, hoping to make it by 12.01 a.m. when the seats are awarded. Since then, the line to get in has grown to nearly a half mile long. 93-year-old Pat Schroeder even drove 14 hours with her kids to be able to hear the former president. Isn't, Isn't that, that sweet? That is sweet. And yeah. what's interesting is it took a brain tumor for people to yeah. care about his life. He's been doing this for years. For years, yeah. So I, I think see? they figure now that it's very serious. They want to at yeah. least hear him one time, and so he's getting the crowds. That's what, that's, see, that's how God works a miracle. Sure. Crazy trials yep. bring a lot bring of people. Bring other people. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Oh, I feel so yeah. guilty because I, I'm a, I teach Sunday school. And no one comes? What no, age? Uh, everyone what age comes, group? but I try to leave. I'm trying not to be there. <laughs> what? What? Which one? Do you I teach? teach the adults. Oh, the adults. So you have to be really smart. Well, or you have those out there going, uh, no, Mister yeah. Townsend, Excuse you're not right me? on that. I have it. I have a better Can information you than you do. Tell me where that is in the Bible. <laughs> exactly. I make up a lot of stuff in the Bible. <laughs> it's bad. That is bad. It's, but you know what? It keeps them coming. 
It they just them, keep, keeps them on their seat to make sure yeah. you're being truthful. They're like, yeah. They're always like, I don't know. But there's always one out there, though, that goes, eh, I don't think that's right. Yeah, and I say, well, as soon as you uh, have a doctorate, we'll talk. <laughs> okay. You always pull the doctor card. <laughs> there you go. Which does me no good in religion. Okay. Hey, uh, great stuff. Great stuff. We, um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Dr. Brian Willoughby will be joining us. He uh, he is right here from the campus at BYU. Also, is uh, he's one of my just favorite guys. I love picking his brain because he not only knows a lot about marriage and family, but he's the director of the Relate Institute, which is a program where you can go on and evaluate your marriage and uh, and figure out you know what you need to do to strengthen your marriage. We'll be talking a little bit more about that. You can go to relateinstitute.com to find that on campus here at BYU. But we're going to come back, talk about cinematic romance. We're going to blow up some myths like soulmates, the idealization of partners, you know, some of this stuff that love at first sight, these myths that come up when we uh, just watch the movies. Some of it ain't necessarily real. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Our good friend, Dr. Brian Willoughby, is in studio with us today. He's an assistant professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University and is also the director of the Relate Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the studying and improving of romantic relationships. You can, By the way, you can find that website. Go to relateinstitute.com. It's a great profile to um, help you... Um, Evaluate the strength of your relationship. That's right. And then do some, it'll even help you adjust and give you some solutions and things to work on. Yep. Make yourself a better person. Heaven forbid. Hey, uh, by the way, when you go to that website, the topic is called, the headline says Cinematic Romance. You wrote a blog article on it. You're blowing up this idea of the cinematic romance, right? Right. What? You don't think the movies are true? Like Cinderella, Prince Charming... Some they kiss, can be true, they get married, yeah. soulmate, perfect. Everything's perfect in movies, right? Because right. we like our happy endings. Yeah. At least That's unless right. it's a horror movie. That's right. Yeah, you don't want like a chainsaw massacre. Right. To, yeah. But yeah, the, the depiction of relationships, and not just in movies, in TV shows, and oh. novels, just, just in the media that yeah. we consume, um, have a, a very exaggerated, unrealistic oftentimes portrayal of relationships. Right. And Nothing wrong with that. Oh no! Of course, nothing wrong with that. But no, it's no, an illusion. It's yeah. not real. And then we we then have people that think that love should go like the movies, right? And it's it's not about one movie or one TV show or one novel. It's the fact that for most of us, ever since we were two, three, four, you know, those first Disney cartoons, yeah. those first books that our parents were reading us, <laughs> it's been con- a consistent message since we were very very young, over and over and over again. Even though a lot of us think, oh, media doesn't affect me. Right, I don't no. get I don't get affected by. I hardly I am, even watch. Yeah, I am above that. <laughs> um, the fact that we've been bombarded with that message over and over and over again since we were so young, we can't help but be affected by that. Oh, it, sure. It, it, it changes our perception about relationships. But okay, so uh, you sound like a cynic. You sound like this professor that is trying <laughs> to blow up the myth that okay. So let's just say there's a princess. 
She's beautiful. So let's say she took a bite out of an, out of an apple. She's, she's on a table, spread out, just sleeping, bunch of dwarfs standing around her, and some dude rides in on a horse. Right. You're not saying you, – you, are you saying that that's not real love? I mean, she's sleeping. Right. And the dude comes in, yeah. kisses a sleeping lady. Yeah. And this, so here's, here's why it's so aside, subtle, right? Kisses a lady. Is in that moment, sure, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it could be uplifting. Well, it's it kind of weird. Great. He doesn't even know weird. her, does he? Yeah, that, that, that's true. There, there's, there's some interesting aspects <laughs> to that one. Yeah. But, but it's, it's when I see that over and over uh-huh. and over and over. And again, it's very, very subtle. Yeah, right. And over time, that can slowly, um, in very small ways, start to shift how I think about love, mm-hmm. how I think about relationships, and in particular, how I think about long-term right. relationships, which are almost never depicted. No, 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 no. Yeah, you don't see. Movies. Well, and then even when you see it, you see the romantic ending of a long-term relationship. Right. Where someone's dying after 50 years and they right. die in your arms. Yeah. They don't see fighting. Right. Yeah, and issues we, with your in-laws. And even if we do that, the, we'll have the movie that'll flash back to, well, here's how we got together. That's it, right. And then we'll kind of gloss over those yep. 30 or 40 years that we've yeah. been together. In, in your article call that's uh, titled Cinematic Romance, you blow up basically, you don't call it blowing up, but I say you blow up four myths. Right. Yeah. One is the soulmate, the one and only. Because, see, that's what, by, by the way, your, your shaking has nothing to do with an earthquake. I was warned about this. Okay, good. Okay, I was just wanting you to know that because I'm like, you're probably thinking there's an earthquake. Um, it's just we're building a building next door. Uh, so talk about uh, the soulmate idea because if you believe in a soulmate, that might set you up for some issues. Right. This is one of the most common relationship myths that people have. And oftentimes it doesn't take the form of when people hear soulmate belief, they, they immediately go to the kind of the extreme of there's only one person right. out there for me. And most people understand that's probably not accurate. But most people hold kind of a partial soulmate belief that, well, I don't think it's one person, but maybe it's five. It's five. Or maybe it's ten. You yeah. know, the, but, yeah. but there are definitely this small little handful of people that are, are meant to be mm-hmm. for me or are going to be my most compatible partners. And my job is to go find mm-hmm. that person that fits me, that completes me. On, 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 an, on an earth with like seven billion people. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the problem with that – I mean there's a lot of problems with that soulmate belief idea. But one of the biggest issues with that is that it changes someone's mentality in a relationship to instead of, okay – we are going to build something together and work past our faults and, and, and work past our faults both as a relationship and as, in, and as individuals yeah. to I'm going to find you. And as soon as I find you, we're happy. That, then it'll work. Then it will work. Without, without, almost without any work, really. Yes. It'll just happen. Yeah. All of my other failed relationships yeah. have been because they have a problem. Right. They aren't my soulmate. Right. They aren't compatible with me. Once I find that compa- – and compatible is such a buzzword. It's such a buzzword. Right? That's, that's, yeah. And the online dating scene is capitalizing on mm-hmm. it very much right now. But this idea that once we're compatible, then we're good to go. But see, we don't want to think of relationships as something we have to work on and right. earn mm-hmm. and make better. We just want it to be, you know, like as if the gods had, you know, just meant it to be that way. Right. Exactly. In fact, that's something I was just writing about last week about young adults um, and talking about, you know, for for the young adult population that's dating and, and, and thinking about marriage. Why are they not marrying? Why are they struggling so much in the relationships? And we've done research and interviews with those young adults in their mid-20s. One of the big things they say is just that. It's, I am so stressed with either finishing my education or in my job, trying to move up that corporate ladder, all these other things I'm trying to do, I don't need one more thing that's going to cause me stress, (laughs) right? My relationship is my stress reliever. Yeah, That's the person that's supposed to make me feel better 
every day, not the person that's supposed to be one more thing I have to do. Well, how overwhelming is it? If you believe in soulmates and there's really only five of them, wouldn't one of them like live in New Delhi? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so you're never going to meet that one. Yeah. It's just always ironic to me that you end up finding your soulmate, not ironic, just weird, in your you know your English class right. during college. Yeah. Like of all well, places they could have been. Yeah. Well, and that's not another big issue with the soulmate belief idea is there's always then that doubt. Yeah. Is this actually the person? Yeah. And as soon as there is a fault that I see or as soon as there is a relationship issue that we're dealing with, Boink. there's that little <laughs> sliver in my brain saying, well, maybe you're not mm. the right person. Maybe my it's, mom maybe it's that weren't. guy <laughs> in my math class. Isn't that true? Yeah. It does. It, so it instills that doubt. So the, the soulmate is – so it's really more about get used to the idea that we're going to build an incredibly strong, lasting relationship by change, by learning, by growing, mm-hmm. not just by finding it. Right, exactly. This is something that, that we have to work towards and build together. Now, another thing that we are online or are on uh, screen romances teach us is about you know the idealization of partner. What right. is that all about? So that's the idea of assuming that my partner is perfect, or at least my partner should be perfect. Again, yeah. if we think about a lot of cinematic romances, um, there's this uh, there's this depiction that this partner is going to be romancing me mm-hmm. and will not have – or if they do have faults, if you think about most particularly romantic comedies, right. they might have a fault. But by the end of the movie, they've realized they have that fault and they fix it. And they it. fix that fault. Yeah. And, and, and now we can be together. Fault. Yeah. And now we can be together now that you're over right. that. Um, and so that that's what that idealization that happens, um, and true. it creates very unrealistic expectations for our partner. It's so true. I mean, really, if you think about Cinderella's prince, he's kind of lazy. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't even have to court her; he just found her on a table. Right. Yeah. It's just lazy. It was a really good kiss, it was, and it was a really lucky find. Yeah. Because if he wasn't a creeper looking in people's windows, <laughs> how would he have known? That's true. I don't know. I don't remember the story. Ben's over there thinking now. So, but but what's the problem really with thinking? I mean, I should expect my partner to be great, right? Yeah, they should almost demand it. And there's a little bit of balance with this one. There's there's something in the research. So I'm going to do an academic buzzword here for yeah, a second: yeah. idealized distortion. Oh, here we go. Which is which is a fancy way of saying that in good healthy relationships, there is a degree of thinking your partner is awesome, mm-hmm. um, and thinking your partner is is cuter than other people yeah. and, and yeah. better than other people. The problem because when we take that a little too far, and we again expect that perfection. Um, Thinking your partner is a great partner and thinking that they're better than other spouses out there can be a good thing because it, mm-hmm. it, it, it helps with that commitment. Yeah. Um, but when I think that my partner isn't going to have any faults or when I get frustrated with faults, when I when I think that I deserve better yeah. than that person because of these little things they're doing, that's when it becomes problematic. Well, it, isn't, it seems like – call me old-fashioned, but it seems like that's why we make that oath that we'll be with them through good and bad. Right. In sickness and in health. Yeah. Because when you're first in love, you don't notice yeah. sickness. Yeah. And it, even though it's right there. Yeah. And and that's that's where the movies can come into play too, because a lot of people that will have get that really strong misconception of partners from movies will sometimes sit there watching romantic comedy and say, Why can't you be more like Hugh Grant? Oh, no, dude. I've Why can't had you that. be more like that person? Look, I've what, had look people, what he's doing for her. I've had people say, I just want passion like they show in the notebook. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Which is also a great example. As I always point out to my students, if you rewatch that movie, I've never seen, I've almost never seen a more abusive relationship depicted on film. Really? Like, in terms of like emotional, hitting, physical yeah, violence, at each there's other. all sorts of fun on, things. On, off, in that movie. on, off. Right. Yeah. And the passion that this person wanted 
was the passion of the young kids mm-hmm. uh, in the movie, not the passion of the old man sitting next to the woman with Alzheimer's who doesn't remember him. Right. But is there every day. Yeah. And again, those those 40, 50 years where they struggled right. and went through ups and downs and realized that they're not as awesome as they thought <laughs> they were when they were courting each oh, other. How are we going to survive Hollywood? And let's just say, I mean, the average Hollywood marriage is like three years anyway. Right. So if that's what we're going for, this yeah. is the perfect road. <laughs> anyway, not to not to be mad at Hollywood. Um, let's take a break. We're speaking here with Dr. Brian Willoughby, the, the great, he likes to be called, the great Dr. Brian Willoughby. He really is. He's the real deal, folks. And if you saw him, he's young. He's in great shape. Married. BYU professor. We'll be right back. Uh, He's helping us understand the power of love. And it may not be what uh, the movies present. We're debunking some of the myths. We'll be back to debunk a couple more. Stick with us, folks. When we come back, we'll be learning about love at first sight. Is that real? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We are talking with our good friend, Dr. Brian Willoughby from Brigham Young University's Marriage um, and Family Department. Department of, what do we call it, Brian? School of Family Life. School of Family Life, that's right. And uh, But Brian is, is addressing a recent study by Veronica Hefner of University of Illinois and Barbara Wilson of University of Wisconsin, where they, they researched cinematic uh, romance films, right? Mm-hmm. And um, in there, they have four basic themes that constantly or consistently come up. Soulmate, that there's kind of a one and only idea. This idealization of partner. Um, another one is that love conquers all. And the final one is love at first sight. You've already debunked a couple of them. Talk about this love at uh, love conquers all. If you just have love. Yeah. It, everything else is good. This, this is one of the huge ones that, yeah. that's, that's been there for a long time but is really central to relationships or how people think about relationships now, particularly young adults, because I think it captures this kind of almost rebellious nature that I right. a lot of adolescents, young adults already have, that that it doesn't matter – who disapproves of my right. boyfriend or girlfriend? It doesn't matter what obstacles we have in our way. That's so true. All we need is love. We love each other. That's right. That's <laughs> that. That will, as you said, conquer yeah. all. That will. That will. You know, who cares if we don't have any money? Yeah. Who cares if, if a crack you addict. can't have a stable job care. or a drug addiction? Right. Whatever. It is. We love each other. Yeah. That that is all that matters. We'll love, even if it's with a crack addict. What else do you need? <laughs> Well, probably some money. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Some some shelter, some love and money yeah. and but, shelter. But it but it feeds into this idea again that relationships are just about love. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we know from the research that that is one of the most unstable foundations to base a long term relationship true. on. Um, not that love is not a good thing. And again, yeah. sometimes people make the mistake of, well, I'm either this yeah. this romantic. Or this cynic who thinks that right. love and romance is, is ridiculous. And th- there is a middle ground. There is definitely a place for romance in love in a, in a stable long-term relationship. But when I base the entire relationship on that foundation, as, yeah. as anyone that's been in a relationship for more than probably six months knows, there's days that love doesn't get you through no. that. Yeah, you need, you need to just re- be cool. Right. Well, think about with your baby. You can love your baby 
all day long, but you still need to change the diaper. That's right. And sometimes you're not even changing the diaper out of love. Mm -hmm. You're just changing it because it needs to be changed. Yeah. And and thinking about children is is a good way to think about it because we all love our children. Those of us that have children – um, but there's definitely days that oh. you, you don't like them very much no. and they they frustrate you. But then there's something deeper. Right. There's that parental bond that you have with them, that obligation that you feel to be that that child's mm. parent. And and oftentimes, though, in romantic relationships, we don't have that same mentality. We right. don't have that same commitment um, to fall back on. Yeah. And then that's when things start. to Well, and problems. how many times have you heard the phrase that you've fallen out of love? Right. That's probably rooted in the belief that it's such a big key, essential component. Exactly. That's, that's the way I get rid of you. I just, I just fall yeah. out of it with you. And that, that's where a lot of divorce comes from yeah. is that, that mentality that I don't feel my those butterflies in yeah. my stomach anymore I when I look at you. I don't feel it anymore. And we don't have that romance. And now we're just raising kids and going through the motions. And that's not no. fun. Yeah. You know, and then, we, then usually you add some conflict and communication yeah. problems on top of that. But that can form the basis, that kernel. In your brain that grows over time, and then well, and then how easily can that be sparked with just someone else, right? That laughs at every joke and thinks you're the greatest, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah. oh, there's and love again, and that's where a lot of infidelity happens. Is, infidelity is is really interesting because it's usually not that hot person and my coworker that's yeah. so attractive I can't help myself. Oftentimes, it's that person was paying attention to me, mm-hmm. and like you said, laughing at my jokes, Man, yeah. and 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 now I'm feeling those those things again, and yeah. I don't have that in my marriage, and so maybe so this true. person. Will will give that to me. Talk about the final myth: love at first sight. I mean, I hear that. Oh, we knew right then, right, right then. <laughs> and you're like, whoa. <laughs> the, this this is one that gets people in trouble with with choosing marriage partners. Um, as, as I talk about with my classes, there's there's a lot that should go into a decision about who to marry and who to have a relationship with. Um, and unfortunately, that love at first sight isn't a big part of it. As I always tell my students, their attraction, this is really what we're talking right, about, right. is that first attraction to someone. It is important. It's it's what research suggests brings us together. What's, it's what makes us talk to someone for mm-hmm. the first time, go over and kind of try to get their attention, want to know more about them. Um, but once we move past that, Oftentimes, if I'm thinking about a long-term committed relationship or especially marriage, I want to be thinking a lot more about what kind of person is this? What are their personality characteristics? What's their right. background? You know, trying to understand what their weaknesses are. And everyone has weaknesses, sure. but are they weaknesses I'm willing to put up with for a long time? Um, but when we think this idea of love at first sight really, really matters beyond the initial attraction, um, sometimes that makes people gloss over some things or or assume that, well, yeah, you know— that person has some faults, but I'm sure they'll change. Yeah, they'll eventually. get better. Yeah, they'll, they'll get better. They'll get past <laughs> that or or I'll get better. And it won't annoy me as much in, in, in a year or two. And, and you, you put these two myths together that love at first sight is going to happen to me. And then love is all that matters. And you start, again, to get people into relationships and into marriages where they've they've glossed over these issues that then down the road cause major, major problems. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and then again, it's like... You, you've just – love has to be earned. It has to be worked on. It's never – I mean in the end I always look at it. You're going to end up taking care of somebody and giving them love without maybe even ever getting it back because right. the final stages of all of our lives, one of us is going to be a caregiver. Right. 
And it's usually kind of a quiet, thankless yeah. job, but right. you do it and it makes you love them more. Yeah. And, and and then it's – and the interesting thing is it's still about love yeah. at that point, but it's a very different type totally of love. Totally different. It's a, it's a deeper love based on commitment and a deeper type of intimacy. It's not the kind of romantic right. love that's oftentimes depicted. Um, in fact, um, there's, a, there's a theory out there I teach my classes called Sternberg's Triangular Theory of Love. Ooh. Um, and he talks about all these different types of love that we have with our partners. And one of them is romance. And, and in his theory, love can be based on passion and commitment and then intimacy, like getting to know someone. And he, he, he labeled romance as wanting to get to know someone and passion without commitment. Interesting. Cheap. Yeah. It's cheap. Yeah. It's a counterfeit. Yeah. Yeah. You need commitment to balance it. Right. I mean, otherwise it's just, yeah, there's no risk for yeah. you. <laughs> Man, see, Brian, that's why we need you. Brian Willoughby is his name. You can go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. Willoughby, by the way, W-I-L-L-O-U-G-H-B-Y, drbrianwilloughby.com. Also go check out uh, relateinstitute.com. That's the great uh, program offered by Brigham Young University to help you uh, take your marriage and your relationships to the next step. Brian, thanks, buddy. You nailed it. He nailed it, of course. The man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Brian Willoughby. We'll take a break. My friends, come back. Talk to our buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, buddies. <laughs> We're going to shoot it down to our good friends down at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. What's I love up? that you always use a sports verb. We're going to shoot it down. Ooh, Pass see that? it down. You know Throw what? it down. I didn't even know I was doing that, but thank you. I'm going to now take a note. Keep using sports words. <laughs> shoot it down. I just think that it's, it's a very manly thing. Of course it is. How this are you is guys? the manliest part of your show. You have no idea. You have no idea. You are so right. You are so right. Hey, uh, good news for you today. What's that? Kanye. Kanye is running for president in 2020. In 2020. Yeah. He's already got a, a pack that's starting to, uh, to put some money away for him. Would you guys give him your vote? No, but okay. I wouldn't put it past our society to vote him in as president. He's the great interrupter. He seems to interrupt a lot of great, you know, award ceremonies. I can guarantee that Taylor Swift won't vote for him. That's She'll, so true. She's going to be here this week. Ta- locally was, in Salt Lake. I was going to say, is Taylor coming night. over? Is she hanging out with you guys? Jeremy's bitter because he wanted to go to the concert. Not bitter, just sad. You you're, know? you're sad. I wish Aww. I could go. That'd be fun. Well, you know it's what? It's been sold out for a long time. Well, maybe and the I. Tickets are crazy expensive. In what, fact, I'm going to look on StubHub right now and see. What if I told you I could get you backseat tickets? Backseat back tickets? <laughs> what is this, high school? <laughs> yeah. No, they're called backseat. Uh, okay. Uh, what if I told you I could get you back there? Just so, the two of you in the back of a car for about 10 minutes with your family and kid. Talking with Taylor Swift? Yeah. I'd say that would be awesome. My wife probably doesn't want me in the back seat with Taylor Swift. Um, okay. The cheapest ticket is 375 bucks. So How much do you oh. want it, Jerem? Not uh, that much. 
Well, why I'm saying it's backseat, it's because we're actually, my friend drives taxi, and um, he's he's picking her up at the airport. So just be For you, real? me, you, you, your wife, your kid, and You're Taylor. For real? No. Okay. But there is a one in like 50 chance he could get her in the car. I was car. like, why is Taylor Swift taking a taxi? I know. That's what I was thinking. Hey, are you guys noticing something? I don't want to point it out. Because we notice a lot of things, but. Are you, is, is the building shaking where you are right now? Right well, now, the, the no, but where we were, yes. Constant drilling? Yeah. I've been tapping my foot a lot today. I have, too. I feel like I have the shakes. Yes, they are drilling. Now, we have dealt with this in Studio B for months. What, is it, what does it do to your studio? My studio, everything's just vibrating. Yeah, Same, the, same thing. Okay. Yeah, we have, a, we have a set in here, so sometimes it, it's not, like, drilled into the floor. Yeah. So it, it moves, and you can hear it a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. Exactly. I feel like I'm getting a massage, if you know what I mean. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I hate massages. <laughs> you That's hate, a bad thing. You hate massages? I do. I don't like people's... It is kind of uncomfortable. It's just weird. Hands all over me. You know TMI, what I mean? TMI, bro. I know. Totally TMI. Hey, <laughs> are you guys still doing your show thing today with the vibrating studio? I don't know, Jaron. What do you think? Um, let's not do it. Let's, let's let's make that... No, this is Super Tuesday. You got a big game this week. Have you heard about week. this? No, tell me. Okay. What's so super about it? This is the superest Tuesday maybe in the history of BYU TV Sports. Wow, what? Because we have BYU Sports Nation today at noon Eastern. Today is the first day ever that we have a rebroadcast on BYU TV at 6 Eastern. What? Very exciting. Okay, then at 7 Eastern, the hour-long fall camp review debut of Inside BYU Football. The oh, new all-access show into BYU Football. It's going cool. to be awesome. Then at 8 Eastern, the premiere the season debut of After Further Review, a preview of BYU-Nebraska. Oh, wow. Six, seven, eight Eastern tonight. Not to mention the show that's coming up live in, a, in, in 10 in minutes ten and short 23 minutes. seconds. Oh, my heavens. You guys are busy. Busy. That's the thing. When are we not busy? Well, when – see, let's, if, I did, if I could get you a backseat, if I could get you a backstage pass <laughs> with Taylor Swift, you guys wouldn't even have time to use it. So Jeremy would find time. I'm not even going to try. Oh, I, I would admit, my wife said, what are we doing this week? And I said, well, Thursday at 6.30, we're watching Michigan-Utah. <laughs> Friday at 8.15, we're watching Boise State-Washington. And then Saturday, I'm going to be gone for 12 hours. It sounds like you're, you're ruining your marriage. She knows what she got into. Because she's calling me constantly. <laughs> I'm so tired of it. That's the second time he's referenced that in the past two weeks. I know, she's calling a lot. It's because the season's starting. No, I told her I'll see you in <sighs> February. We've already said our goodbyes. <laughs> Dude, and then, and then BYU hoops is midstream. So, oh, you guys, your poor wives. No, the fall is fun. I'll have you. I'll. I, I'll. I'm yeah, gonna, they're pretty poor. I'm going to help you. I'll help you. We appreciate that. Well, no, it's an exciting time. College this is the. Games, this man. is. This is the week. This is happening. It's happening. It's the most wonderful time of the year. I yes. don't care what people say. In the depth charts out, Matt. We know who's going to play. Do we? Yes. Who's starting at quarterback? By the way, I know that was mm. a. We were wondering that is a about big that. question, isn't it? I'm going with Taysom. You just got an email. I just got another email. Oh, yeah, they're changing the seating chart in the office. Great. Um, <clears throat> I, I turn that thing off every break, and then I turn it on every break. It's horrible. Hey, uh, okay, well, I'm going to let you go. You guys got to go get makeup. You got to get, you know, waxed, no, all that stuff. No, we're ready to go, man. Okay. Let's rock. Super Tuesday. Knock, knock them dead, boys. And I will go work on Taylor. I can't guarantee it'll be a backseat pass. Welcome to New York, to New York. <laughs> I've been waiting for you.
Hey, true story. We had a Taylor Swift day on the show one day. Like did, I dropped like four or five song lines. Did yeah, you really? There was, was a somewhat Taylor theme, Taylor Swift themed show. Yeah. You guys, you're so talented. Today though. is Creed. Is it Creed? Excellent. My sacrifice. Hey, John, can you take me higher? <laughs> <laughs> Pro Jam's like, Eddie Vedder's like, hey, that was my thing. Let's that was my line. That. that was a super high note. That was really good. That was really good. Hey, let, let's try to. <laughs> Let's try to do more karaoke and stuff when we're on the show, okay? okay. Dude, Creed's, Creed and Pearl Jam, baby, for life. Okay, tomorrow let's do... <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins. Let's do Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. Okay. Okay. Play Today coming in, please. Okay. That's my request. Today we'll play that song yes. tomorrow. Okay. okay. Correct. And then we can play Tonight after that. Okay, we'll play it's Today, Tonight, but we'll do it all tomorrow. And then 1979. In, yeah, 1979. Okay. Uh, go, go do your business. Sports. Thanks, guys. Have fun. Oh, that's crazy. They sing a lot. We don't sing on the show much. I think, Ben, you need to start singing. I know you got some pipage. I keep it inside. I like to keep my songs inside my heart. You said it way better than I <laughs> Thank you. Hey, did you hear this crazy news? Army. The Army is searching for a missile that fell from an Apache helicopter in upstate New <laughs> Wow. That was the fire alarm. Um, so if you are in upstate New York and there, and there's like a hundred pound missile that lands in your yard, will you call the army? It fell right off of an Apache helicopter flying Friday. The vehicle was traveling from Fort Drum in Northern New York to an air show at Stewart International. Wow. Apparently they found it. You don't need to call. Apparently we just blew something up there. The military said the M-36 captive flight training missile is non-explosive. So if it does happen to land in your yard, not going to explode. Well, we just found that it does explode. It does explode. It actually just did explode. So apparently the Army's lying about that. And disregard that announcement, too. Yeah, disregard it. But by the way, 64 inches long, it's a black missile. Black, long missile. That's like five feet long. You'll see it. Check your garden. If you see it, pay attention, folks. It's it's right next to your garden gnome. Pay attention to that. Today, by the way, no rhyme or reason day, which is why we just did that story. There's no rhyme to it and no reason to it. We already did mention that Kanye West is uh, running for president. And I think, do you still have the audio of him at his inaugural, at his, not his inaugural address, just at his, him addressing the country? If we, if we could just get to that, I think it's an important, uh, it's an important audio bite because if by chance Kanye is elected to be president in 2020, he is going to have a state of the union and he's going to need to face his people. And when he when he has to face his people, you're going to hear something and he's going to speak a little bit like a president you've never heard before. He's um, he's a lot more hip, let's say. He's also a lot more focused on the youth of the world. Are you ready for that, Benny? Ben's got it. Three, two ish. I kind of surprised him. The President of the United States. Bro! Bro! 
Listen to the kids. They love him. They love him. They love him. That's our president. Bro, listen to the kids. And then a little bit later, oh, I guess, in actually in, in this one, he admits that he had just done drugs. <laughs> but then he talks about the kids. He's got to listen to the kids. Anyway, that's why it's important, folks, that you do your civic duty. And you choose a really good president because we need a really good president, don't we? Uh, you know, tough times. Need good leaders. Let's go now to our, my favorite uh, time of the show, the hero. Uh, every day we try to highlight a hero. And after 14 years of service, one retiring police officer decided to spend his last day helping his community. And to honor his 14 years of service, this police officer did something that touched his entire community. As he patrolled the streets one last time, Commander Brian Peters, a retiring Minnesota police officer, decided to do things differently for the last day of work. Peters stopped random people in the street, particularly those with kids, and he handed out free gift cards to grocery stores to help them buy any supplies that the families might need. Normally being stopped by a police officer can induce panic, of course, but a number of lucky people were all smiles when this officer approached him. Peters gave out the equivalent of his last paycheck, saying that the citizens of the city have been wonderful to him. I've been very blessed, so it feels good to give back. Peter says he will continue to find ways to serve his city as he takes on his new position as manager of the Crisis Center at Target's Minnesota headquarters. It's pretty cool. So we honor him, Brian Peters, Commander Brian Peters. Thank you for your great service to all the law enforcement out there that are making our lives easier. We thank you. Remember, folks, to be a hero, it's not... uh, It doesn't have to be something just crazy and out there. It can just be simply being the great person you are, offering your great contribution. We're out of here. Today, we're done. We'll be back tomorrow. More tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. Until then, make it a great one, folks. We'll talk again tomorrow.